Okay, not working. Uh, what's not working? Oh, that's the D once again. Mm, test, test, test. So we're 30 seconds into the four hour podcast and there's been a fuck up. And, and this is us not fucking up. Yeah. So just <laughs> you, you wait until we get the actual material of the episode. Welcome back. It's the Flick Lab. Kicking with some sick rhymes. Tadab. Yeah, whatever. We are extremely tired, Lab, today. <laughs> Henrik just got back from Croatia. And I just got back from a full day without coffee, and that's how it's gonna continue. And I've just woken up. <laughs> yeah. So today's theme, us not fucking up. Yeah. I'm Henrik, he's Curry, and somewhere in between us is Tom. Hello! Hi there! Nice to have you with us once again. <laughs> Moikka! Moikka! Well, that was, that, that was better than most Finns saying it. <laughs> At least we have one guy who will be probably awake today. Yep, and I hope so. As you noticed that, no, no, we do not use surnames in the lab, it's the rule of the lab. In okay. the spirit of in the spirit of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we tried surnames last episode and it went ditch up. So let's not return to back to that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean it's not a spelling contest here. So if you if you ask our Reddit page, it most definitely is. Georgie, Georgie Lazenby. Wow, Australian actor. Coming to play James Bond. I know, right? You do, huh? Well, yeah, what's your experience with th- this film, Tom? Well, as I've already said to you, I mean, I found this film really bizarre. Yeah, you said it twice, even. Well, first of all, we have an Australian actor, George Lazenby, which contrasts so much with the, um, with probably Ian Fleming's idea of James Bond, who's the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who was Scottish, like Sean Connery. <laughs> when, 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 that's a good one. When was the first time when you saw this, Tom, if you remember? Oh, you're fucking kidding me. <laughs> yeah. I just crashed. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> really? Gary <laughs> is not going to edit, edit today's episode if we are... If we are to trust his words, so our dear dear listeners, this is us fucking up once again. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I was in mid-floor. <laughs> um, so, so, well, I myself crashed thinking when I saw this film as well. Like, impossible to say I was six or seven when I saw it, like, most probably, and so, George Lazenby, <laughs> yes. he's a Bizarre. Yeah. Car, car salesman from Australia, who never acted before, indeed, 
Yeah, he he went into straight in the big leagues with with Bond role. Yeah. So if we want to go through this, uh, Connery resigned during "You Only Live Twice," and the book on Her Majesty's was written in Jamaica when Doctor No was filmed, April '63, and it was often said to be one of the best ones. The film was supposed to be coming out somewhere around after Goldfinger. It's actually in the original end credits, like James Bond will return in on Her Majesty's, but later they fixed it to say Thunderball, which they did, and then they did You Only Live Twice because they didn't have the right season to film on Her Majesty's scenes, so which screws up with the book order uh, quite a lot because in the book order. On Her Majesty's comes first, and it's extremely much tied with You Only Live Twice, in which Blofeld now knows James Bond by his face, and he is in this weird castle in Japan or something, and in the movie it's the volcano that we know and love. Which is kind of funny in the film continuation as well, because first Bond meets Ernst Tower Blofeld for the first time in the volcano, And then comes George Lazenby's Bond, and somehow Bond and Blofeld do not recognize each other. And they were going to do some funny tricks into the storyline first. That okay, maybe Connery's Bond got an operation to his face, and uh, that's why <laughs> Blofeld will not recognize him. But looks like Blofeld got some operation done as well on his earlobes. Yeah, well, I, I think he didn't got those for this role, so he has some special earlobes. So Peter Hunt is the director of the film. He did the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and during that he worked on a script with Richard Maybaum. And Peter Hunt was for the longest time promised that he would be able to get the directing job in James Bond because he had been editing all the previous James Bond films, and he was quite tired of that and wanted to try something else. Michael Reed does the cinematography. He was in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Thing as well. Actually, a lot of the crew, for example, for the second unit, was brought from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. John Glenn was a friend of Peter Hunt's, and this is his first work on John, work on James Bond. And John Glenn, as we all know, obviously he directed all the James Bond films from the 80s. But yeah, why did Sean Connery leave? Your thoughts, Henrik? I really don't know because Sean Connery and this franchise is kind of a, almost a meme. Like it's it's almost the same situation as as with now is going on with Daniel Craig, where Connery every now and then went off and declared that this is my last point and I'm gonna leave the franchise. And unlike Craig, he actually did leave the franchise only to come back in in pretty weird ways. Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot to tell around this beast. Like basically, Sean Connery was offered a certain amount of money for Doctor No, and then from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, and and when the Goldfinger mania started to happen, the whole James Bond mania was starting to get completely new spheres. And uh, during the premiere of Goldfinger, Sean Connery was quite a lot abused or he was kind of attacked in a way that people were trying to get inside his car what was it like one lady was trying so hard to get to sit in front of Sean Connery or 
whatever the case was. And he kind of learned from that, guys. He didn't show up for the premiere of Thunderball because he saw what it's like. And then came the shooting of You Only Live Twice. And Sean Connery has made the notion that he has always known exactly what money means to him. And I know exactly not what it means to him because he has been using it kind of in kind of a bizarre ways during his career, especially around Bond. He did get a hell of a lot of money for You Only Live Twice. Regardless, he got more and more tired of being James Bond because in Japan, for example, he couldn't get a moment's rest. He was actually in a restroom. And he looked up from his toilet seat and there was a guy behind the door, some journalist trying to take a photo of him. <laughs> and yeah, and, and it, it got so weird that that was, I believe that was the final straw when he said that he's not going to do another one. Fair enough. Yeah. Also, he never quite liked Harry Saltzman, the other producer from the Harry Saltzman Gabi Broccoli pair. And during You Only Live Twice, he avoided him very much. And it got so bad that he he was not going to perform if Harry Saltzman didn't fuck off from the film set. I mean, it does seem like a stressful job. Daniel Craig famously said he'd rather slash his wrists than do another Bond film. <clears throat> yeah, and then they doubled his paycheck and he was once again doing a Bond film. Yep. <laughs> we have to also mention that... It was like a few days, or was it like a week max, after the, they finished shooting on Spectre, and then he made those infamous comments. And We know that the role is re- very physical for Daniel Craig, and that was coming like after those shootings. So the first thing that he could think of was absolutely fucking not. But seems like he's not currently very much enjoying playing James Bond as well. They're having a lot of problems and seems that Daniel Craig is not really into it and just pissing people off at the set. That's what I heard. That could also explain a couple of things on what goes on in Spectre once we get to cover it because you kind of can see that even Daniel Craig himself is not having fun with that film. Yeah, well, no surprise, but he has entered the sleepwalking phase of James Bond actors. For Sean Connery, it happened, at least in You Only Live Twice. He's just, you can basically see that he doesn't have the same enthusiasm for the role. He's just kissing girls like he's like really bored. Oh, poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah, Yeah, I, I, I kind of think that that is something that happens to all the Bond actors. If they kind of a stick with the franchise. Like, you you start with the franchise and you become James Bond and it's really fun and you you enjoy it a lot. But they, when, when you follow these actors for a longer time, when they return to the part, you kind of can get the feeling that they all kind of lose that, that excitement of playing Bond. Yeah. Uh. Maybe that even happened to Roger Moore, or I don't know what happened in his last film, but he looks much more serious in there than in, for example, Octopussy before his last one, A View to a Kill. I think Pierce Brosnan's time came really quickly. He didn't have any time to get bored yet. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I always felt that Brosnan also felt, looked like a bit of a sleepwalker. In Die Another Day. Like, when you compare Brosnan in, in mm. that film and in Golden Eye, I, I would say you kind of get 
entirely two different types of performances from the guy. Almost like he was actually excited and actually really enthusiastic about the chance of playing James Bond when he was making Golden Eye. Yeah, and in his later films, I just don't get that same edge from his performance. And there is no edge in the performance of the script as well. So Yeah, that too. It doesn't give the same emotional depth in <laughs> Die Another Day compared to Goldeneye, for example. Yep. If you compare today's actor from today's mm. film with the other Bonds, there's definitely a difference in temperament. George Lazenby is the is the coolest guy, is the coolest Bond that I've ever seen. <laughs> Nothing really seems to disturb this guy. Pierce Brosnan, however, <laughs> was kind of neurotic, I think, okay. as is Daniel Craig. Mm. Probably a lot of the character of George Lazenby went into this film. Uh, so, so this guy indeed was a car salesman, and he had a loving relationship with a certain girl called Belinda. And Belinda went to the UK for a couple of months. That was the initial plan. But soon after, she stopped riding to George Lazenby and Lazenby panicked, left Australia with the boat all the way to the UK, finally arrived. This is what, how he got in touch with lively old England. And the relationship stuff really didn't work, but somewhere he met a guy who was a modeling photographer. And via this modeling photographer he became a model, and via this he got into the Fry advertisement for TV. It's some kind of a chocolate brand, I believe. And this is an advertisement that Harry Salzman saw on, on TV. As far as I understand it here at the laboratory, George Lazenby was friends with Maggie Abbott. And Maggie Abbott once after their friendship had kind of grown, called Lazenby when he was in Paris and informed him that there might be a role available for him. So at first Lazenby really didn't give a rat's ass about the whole phone call and he came back to the UK only several weeks later. And when he arrived, then this friend pushed him to meet Maggie Abbott finally and he did and he got the information that uh, she thinks that he could be good for the role of James Bond. And he asked why? Well, because he has this very arrogant behavior about him that they might be looking for. Asshole. <laughs> yeah, ba basically, he's an asshole. <laughs> and kind of, yeah, he has this playboy quality already because... Speaking of playboy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because... Well, he was trying to get the relationship going again in, in the UK with Belinda, but actually they got together. And then on a work trip for modeling, George Lazenby went to fuck some other girl and then came back and the Belinda f found out about it and the relationship ended. So, well, he has this James Bond qualities and definitely when he got the arrogance to go to the casting office and do what he did. There were several people who were dressed up as in James Bond costumes and he asked if he could also be in an interview in the casting office, but he couldn't because he didn't belong to any acting agencies. So what he did was he went to the same 
barbershop as Connery, got the same hair as Connery, and went to the same tailor as Connery. But even that had a pretty fucked up quality about it. I mean, the tailor told him that it would take six months for him to get this kind of a suit. So what he did was, when, when the tailor was having his attention into something else, there was a suit made for Connery hanging somewhere in the corner. And when the tailor didn't see, he just snatched it and ran away and went back to the casting office, now perfectly suited as James Bond. Not only that, when the clerk at the casting office looked on the floor and didn't pay attention, he just ran to the casting office past her and went to the casting office. And George Lazenby was standing in the doorway and said that, oh, I heard that you're looking for James Bond. And then the casting agent guy said, hold on, hold on. And he was in the phone with Harry Saltzman. There might be a guy for you that you could be interested in. So he took George Lazenby to see Harry Saltzman. This story is just fucking amazing. I'm just rambling and trying to get through it because it's so cool. And he was in the Harry Saltzman office. The casting agent told Lazenby to sit down. He didn't. Instead, he went to the window and then Harry Saltzman kind of still on the phone Lazenby caught his attention by not following this order. Probably got some respect right there. And basically what he did, he was keeping on to his lie that he had been acting in all of these different countries before that they couldn't fact check from his background. (laughs) (laughs) And Harry Saltzman bought it. Uh, The casting agent bought it. Apparently Copy Broccoli then has also bought it. And he got into an interview with the director, Peter Hunt. And Peter Hunt was, first of all, really pissed off because he was location hunting, location scouting. And he had to drag his ass back to London to just see this random George Lazenby guy. And uh, he asked uh, what he had done before. And then George Lazenby leveled with Peter Hunt and said that, Peter, I haven't done shit in my whole life in front of a camera. Well, except maybe that Fry advertisement. Anyway, But um, yeah. And Peter Hunt just started belly laughing. Like, this guy had just gone through and cheated two of the most ruthless guys he has ever met, Gabby Brogoli and Harry Saltzman. Take balls. Yeah. Peter Hunt just said that, stick to your story and I'll make you the next James Bond. And the rest is history. Pretty short-lived history. Sure, sure. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, it's now now that you tell it here on on the lab, it sounds like exciting and extremely cool story. But the fact in the matter still is that back in the day when Lazen P pulled off all these stunts, like pointed out, he basically was an asshole. An asshole and a liar. So not just an asshole, a liar. And a thief. Not to forget that one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oh god. So that that's what we are having with us today on, on this episode. I hope George isn't listening to this. <laughs> well, I, I hope that he will find us, you know, after this episode gets released. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. He yeah. seems too much of a nice guy as well, too. He he also seems like he's at his eighties now. Yeah, so, seventy eight or yeah, something like that, around that ballpark. So if he gets pissed, well, first of all, me and Kari, well, we are in Finland, so he mostly he's gonna come after you, Tom, and you most likely would be able to run away from him. 
I'm just joking. He's a really, really good actor and a really good guy. <laughs> well, there was a lot of trainings to be done with George Lazenby, even though they wanted him to be selected. They ran him through several tests. There was a swimming test, uh, like a physical kind of a walking test, I believe, and a gay test. They actually sent a girl to his hotel room just to see that they would have sex so they would get rid of the concern that as a male model he would not be a homosexual. Yeah, you can't have a f- playing James Bond. That That's one of the rules. Yeah, of course it is. But, but uh, <laughs> film... <laughs> film... I, 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 think, I think it would actually make the filming a little bit less troublesome, you know. You you don't need to worry about any awkward moments with the ladies. What what I've understood how sex scenes are done in Hollywood, you most definitely are not gonna get any awkward moments. That or the, or the scene is or shooting the scene itself is so awkward for the actors that yeah. you know absolutely fucking nothing is going to happen erection wise. <laughs> but the film was still very successful. Got its money back. Not as successful as some of the Sean Connery or things. Yes, indeed. But it was successful, and you know what? They were ready to offer him six or seven films after this one as a deal, and a one million bonus just to sign the contract. But he refused. And why? Because Easy Rider and the hippie times and 70s and stuff like that. So he saw that James Bond was on the way out because it didn't fit the Make love, not war, because James Bond was all about war. And he made the mistake of his life, most likely, and left the franchise. Or then again, maybe it couldn't have worked out, we will never really know, because this is his first and last outing as James Bond, so whatever would happen, it would probably still be a moderately good box office success, you know? Well, uh, as you know, Carrie, some claim that he was fired, he, he didn't resign. And I, and, and I had to clear this point up with you earlier. The thing is, the agent of George Lazenby advised him not to continue as James Bond, and he held a press release to say that he is not going to do that, after which the producers seemed to change their tune, kind of change the story, and they said that, oh, we fired him. It was simple, simple as that. I believe George Lazenby's story much more than Cubbies and Harry's. I don't know, I'm kind of a mixed re- when it comes to believing the two sides. It's yeah. it's really hard to actually know what is the truth in the matter. Lazenby tells you that he, he quit, and the producers tell, tell you that they fired him. So, George Lazenby, we can thank Maggie Abbott for him getting the role, basically. Told a pack of flies to get the role... Yeah, one of the first things that they shot was the gun barrel scene of the film. Uh, somebody shouted that he should do it like Connery does it. And on the first take he resisted even that order and kneeled down instead. And uh, as I understand it from the Becoming Bond documentary, he tried his best to screw up all the retakes. So they went with the shot that they didn't want him to do, kneeling down. That is something that most definitely will not get you fired in the movie world. Yep. But that kind of is the thing with Lazenby's story when it's been told by him that the fact that 
throughout the story, Lazenby kind of makes a point how he never followed any rules and any directions that were given to him. And that in movie making business is a big no-no, since that is a sure as fuck way, get yourself fired. Or in many cases, even mid-production, so I was kind of as, if Lazenby's story about all the antics he pulled off is true, I am surprised that they actually stick with Lazenby throughout the film, didn't simply kick him off during mid-production and simply quickly find another actor to do the role. Well, of course, the story, I'm sure, is more colorful than that. But as long as we're still talking about the arrogance of George Lazenby, there's one more good example that I can throw. Well, they were filming in Switzerland in the Biz Gloria, and the filming crew were about to eat some kind of a dinner or lunch that Cobby Procoli had arranged for the entire cast and crew because everybody was a little bit stressed filming in the location and uh, tensions were a little bit high. So he came there to kind of help out and offer everyone some good food, come together and relax. And George Lazenby was not there, and then he finally was at the doorway, just standing there. And then the wife of Copy Procoli, Dana Procoli, approached him and told him that, Oh, George, come here, come sit with us and have fun and eat with us. And he did come, kind of reluctantly looking, came to sit, and then Dana asked, why are you like this? Why are you angry? And he said, because nobody invited me to this dinner. And Dana said, oh, but we had like information about this on the walls everywhere, on the elevators and stuff, and everybody knew about it. And then he just said, but I'm the star. <laughs> and Kabi uh, Procoli had a good follow-up comment to that. He said, you're not the star because I say... You are the star. You are the star when the audience says you are a star or accepts you as a star, whatever the quote was. That still remained to be seen. Yeah, well, um, he just made it from doing advertisements or one advertisement to being James Bond. So um, he's flying high right now. Did fly and then crash landed after this film. Yeah, really, really hard. Yeah, really hard. There really was no career for Lazenby after on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, I mean, I, I I had to check his filmography because I can name exactly off the top of my head zero other films than this. But he has done a bunch. But He has done a bunch of acting, but not in the films most likely anyone has seen. Funny thing, a guy does one film in one of the most or the, the most successful film franchise of the time, for sure, then just leaves and decides that, oh, well, I'm arrogant enough that I think I will have some future with other roles. Like, what else do you have going for you when everything is offered you with, like, on a silver plate? Please take this one million and six movie deal. Or, like Diana Rick said in some interview, this guy is the maker of his own destruction as an actor. Well, Lazenby did get another shot on franchise, and this time he actually took it and stayed with the franchise since he appeared in basically all the original Emmanuel movies. Okay. Which which are the only films from Lazenby's filmography that I've actually seen. Any good? No, and they are not porn, in case that anyone tries to, you know, make make that argument. They, They are erotic 
art films. I see. I Let, see. Let's, let's say it that way. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, most, most definitely not good. Well, I think we could sit here for the next sunrise to talk about Lazenby, but Diana Rick is the actor who plays Tracy or Tracy Bond, pretty much best known for this film and Game of Thrones, where she played Olenna Tyrell, also played in The Avengers. Isn't that right, Tom? That's correct. I actually never saw The Avengers. It was way before my time. Same, uh, same here. And I also never seen Game of Thrones. No, nor me. Either. Nor me. So when it comes to her, I guess, biggest parts, which, which I would believe would be these two TV series roles, The Avengers and Game of Thrones, neither one of those have I seen myself. I, I myself mostly know her for the smaller parts she has made, like the Painted Whale, and that one time she showed up in Murder in Mind. But to me, pretty unknown actress. Well, Telly Savalas plays Blofeld, and <clears throat> maybe Henrik knows him. Well, to continue with, with the famous TV series I've never checked out, I have never seen even one episode of Kojak. Kojak. Which is his most famous role, I guess. Yeah. Maybe that old Blofeld. Hard to say, but Kojak, I've understood, run for five years, and even today is is held in high regard as some kind of a detective series. Yeah, I understand he played originally the role... In the Marcus Nelson murders, he filmed from 1973, and then it kind of got this spawn or this Kojak TV series from there. That could very much be. Since that kind of was the trend in back in those days, you have a moderately successful film where some character kind of breaks it through, and the audiences like him, and then you might have some kind of a TV series built around that. But when it comes to Savalas, I'm more familiar with his appearances in war movies like Kelly's Heroes, Dead Dirty Dozen, Battle of the Bulge, the first three films, and the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, yeah, it's a guy who, whose parents were from Greece and they emigrated to the United States. So, all right. Any other actors? Of course, we have Ilse Steppat, and we have Louis Maxwell, we do have Bernard Lee, so Miss Moneypenny and M reprising their roles, as always. Anything else? Hmm. I I guess Gabriele Fercetti, who plays the, yeah. Yeah, plays the main crime boss and Bond's ally here on Her Majesty's Secret Service, deserves... Draco, from Draco Constructions. Yeah. Yeah, a legitimate business. <laughs> But yeah, that dude might also deserve a shout out here for his appearances in The Night Portier or Il Portier di Notte and Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. George Baker, does he say anything to you? Sir Hilary Prey. <laughs> Hilly. Yeah. Hilly, you old devil. Well, he didn't have that much of a role, really. It was, what, 30 seconds long? Sure. Well, it, it, it was long enough that I actually forgot the dude while I was watching the bloody movie. Tom and Henrik, Henrik and Tom, would it be scene by scene? Why not? 
uh, unless someone can actually drop some really good quips about the actors. Because kind of went on full with George Lazenby and have spent godless amounts of minutes covering him. So I, yeah. I guess at this one, at this point, it would be almost mercy for our listeners to simply chop into the scene by scene. Yeah. Uh, if you insist. So pre-credit sequence. There would not be a James Bond film except Doctor No and a couple of others if you wouldn't have a pre-credit sequence. So this was shot way after some of the initial Switzerland shooting in May 13, 1969 in Portugal. And I've always wanted to visit this location. It's a beautiful location. George Lazenby was put into the water and he was complaining that it's cold. The water is cold. But uh, Peter Hunt didn't care and uh, he wanted the best effect, so he was put into the waters. And we do have this, this never happened to the other fellow, that was to break the ice and actually I think that was a fantastic idea. But it has been splitting opinions, so what do you think about this line? I like the line. I, I think it shows some relatively good confidence and self-understanding from the film's end. However, I don't like the opening scene. It, it, it's, a, it's a bad scene with a good line in it. Really? But yeah, on my part also I like that they address the big elephant in the room that Sean Connery is gone and this is the new guy and it's kind of a start of a new era for a little while. So what's your problem with Portugal scene? God damn it. Basically that the scene all around is extremely baffling when you try to look at like what the hell is actually going on. It's basically Bond appears to be on a holiday in Portugal. He follows this one lady for no apparent reason. Then notices that the lady is walking into the ocean and decides to intervene. At which point two completely random guys simply show up with no explanation at all who they are and what the hell they are doing. In fact, they are so goddamn confusing that you later on in the film when Tracy's father is finally presented to the audience, you almost come to believe that the two guys from the Portugal scene work for the father and this is some kind of a hand-fisted attempt to, you know, from the father's end to get Bond help him. And that doesn't make any fucking sense at all. And also the Portugal scene highlights and shows extremely well my entire movie through running problem with the way how the fucking fights are being filmed. Where it's just a combination of flash cuts from one action to the another and not showing, you know, anything between those cuts. Like it's And really fast motion too. Yeah, also that. It's almost like somebody hit the quick rewind button during the fight scenes. He's the fastest Bond, you know. It was also marketed like this, if memory serves, that that he has the quickest punch or something like this. And he does with the rewind button. He also has the quickest edit. But in, in many ways, the Portugal scene, to me, highlights many of the problems that I have throughout the movie. Well, you you are right that it's kind of a confusing for me. Well, if this uh, if this makes any sense, guys, uh, I have seen this movies like all the James Bond movies so many times that kind of my brain goes on 
you know, autoplay or something. I don't even think about these things. It's just, it's just how it's meant to be that this nonsense happens. <laughs> But when I really start to think about it, Bond on a vacation, check. Girl with a car, check. Go to the beach, save the girl, check. And then you have what I believe are the henchmen of Draco from Draco Constructions. And yeah, that, that was my take also. They are trying to kill James Bond. They are yeah. trying to kill James Bond because Draco wants Bond's help. Like, what uh, the fuck are you doing, movie? Well, that or they are just general baddies trying to kill James Bond. That would make the most sense. But don't we see these guys later on? I'm not exactly sure, but yeah. Uh... Yeah, like it, it's it's a fucking clusterfuck, really. I think there are two really unrealistic moments in the film. And one is during this scene where Teresa just randomly collapses in the sea. Like she didn't <laughs> drown or anything. She, she was like knee deep, perhaps ankle deep. Up, 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 up. But Tom, Tom, she faints because of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for oh, some looking. <laughs> she faints. That's that's all I can think of. Okay, she faints. Oh. Definitely, she's not underwater. So. Well, why did he chase her in the first place? Again, yeah, you're right. There's, there's so many. <laughs> it's some here. That the weirdness really starts, and it never ends. That's another thing with the film: the weirdness never fucking ends. You, you two guys have found <laughs> this really weird, apparently. Like, and like, the second, uh, I'm sure we'll get to this scene later on. But I mean, Bond also survives a grenade attack when he's yeah, going, he does. I mean, that should have really killed him off, like instantly. Well, what, but, but what, it, it was a magic grenade. It also had the longest fucking timer in the history of grenades. So, which poses the question, which raises the question, is this guy even human? Oh, you're talking about the bobsled, but come on, guys. He was <laughs> pr- protected by the shield of the bobsled, so he didn't get any shrapnel. <laughs> he, oh. he, he was protected by the power of the script. Whichever way you want to say it, <laughs> we'll get to this. In this two-hour, 22 minutes long film. And I, I love how after you know after the pre-credit scene you finally get the actual credits of the film, and they are also kind of the laziest shit you can pull off. Really? Like I, I, I did give a lot of crap also to from Russia with Love opening credits. What's wrong uh, with it? it's 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 art? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's 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 using old film footage so that you can actually save a penny. I know that they are trying to <laughs> yeah. tie it with Sean Connery and that this would be like part of the whole franchise history. But other than that, can you can you blame this scene for anything? I, I, I actually can because other than <laughs> that, the, the scene is simply the silhouette of George Lazenby running around the screen, which Sometimes is perfect he's... in the beginning, and it's timed with the music. Dun, 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 dun. I like it. But it's really weird when you actually think about, you know, the character of James Bond who is supposed to do all the cool shit. But here he's just running around without any direction. Well, he's running away from the beach into the title sequence. Yeah, and then he's running to the to the opening visuals of the film, but then he changes his mind in mid-run and tries to run away from the opening visuals. And, you know, where's he going? Are you Where actually trying going? to trying to shit on Morris Binder in this podcast? <laughs> I <laughs> actually uh, am. Jesus. Uh, and I'm also also saying that the fact that they use old footage for the previous film, no, it's not an attempt on their part to tie 
this bond with the Sean Connery films, it's simply them trying to save a dime. From what? From actually, you know, doing more opening visuals in any way. Doing new stuff Uh. usually costs money, and they found a clever way around that. Ah, but they are doing this throughout the film. James Bond is in his office reminiscing with his old shit from his previous adventures. Then we have this film reel. (sighs) What else do we have? We do have some references. Yeah, still not saving the opening visuals. Yeah, but for me it was always like, okay, Connery's gone, so let's tie this new guy into this franchise with him. To please the audience. It didn't really please me and Henrik. Yeah. Apparently so, not. Yeah, so good to chop there. Well, after this fantastic title sequence with amazing music from John Barry, which you do not accept, we got to Palacio Hotel. Where oh. Bond is put into room 556. Yeah. <laughs> but cannot stay there because he has sexual urges to go into room 423. Yeah, which also is a running problem with this fucking film. Bond's sexual urges, which actually make him look unprofessional. Which I, is... I know, I know, he blows his cover like at, at least once in this film because of his sexual urge. But yeah, there's a fight in the hotel room with the baddie. And this is what Tom Franklin me- mentioned that. He has this fast-forwarded video of him fighting the bad guy and then just tastes some royal beluga, north of the Caspian. Which is really... This is one of the best characteristics of George Lazenby. He's so cool. He beats up a guy, he walks out of the hotel room whilst eating caviar. And he also drops a really good line. Gatecrasher. (laughs) Not only that, but he also, once again, just like in the opening scene... Here he also makes sure not to actually finish off his opponent and kill him after he's beaten him. So that just like in the opening credits, they can save even more money by reusing the same bad guys in the later scenes. What's what's wrong with using the same bad guy in the next scene? (laughs) Because it looks stupid as all fuck. Most... First of all, I don't the, bad, the, bad, the, the bad, bad guy being in the room and a- attacking Bond uh, makes yet again it makes no fucking sense because the bad guy is sent by the girl's father who still needs Bond's help. So, but but he hasn't realized it yet, I suppose. <laughs> he just wants to get at this point. He just wants to get rid of James Bond, but then he notices that they have more going on. Yeah, he he notices that one night. <laughs> How much time elapsed from the time James Bond beat up the guy to when he reappeared later on in the film? Because he didn't have any scars or injuries or blood on, on his face towards the end of the film. He, he like, reappears what? basically the next day. Yeah. Well, but... and also that guy didn't try to seek revenge at all. Like he just a- accepted his ass whooping. He, which is also he kind quite... of strange. I, I guess he kind of did. Because there is also the goofy moment when... When Bond is with Tracy and and the dude now comes to behind the was it Bond's room's door and is about to enter and then changes his mind and simply walks out of the premises to the next scene. But he was listening behind the door. He, he was, he was. So th- there, there you go from first Bond beating up this one guy, not finishing him off. So that, you know, he's going to be a problem for you the next day. And then the guy actually getting up, 
going behind Bond's door and thinking about maybe I'm going to be, you know, more nuisance to Bond even tonight. And then he simply changes his mind and goes away. Well, maybe like it, at this it, point, maybe at this point, Draco from Draco Constructions had already been given the yeah. green, green light that that uh, we are going to treat him differently from now on. Who knows? No. Who, who knows? It was it was all all the five <laughs> minutes, so magic can happen. But but guys, the Tom mentioned the quip gate crasher. Uh, but there's a lot of quips here that do not work for me. This one, okay, it goes well because he's actually kind of talking to this black guy there but there's a lot of moments where he's just talking to himself and it's not very funny like in the end at the bobsled scene he says he's branched off and he's just talking to himself he's just talking to himself and some of these quips he actually means for another characters also are some of the cringiest shit you can actually get in a point <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I agree Okay, but then we are at the hotel as well, and then there's this scene where Tracy jumps into the casino game, but he doesn't have enough money to pay up, and Bond saves her ass, and the relationship starts growing from there. If you look at the book, it's Draco from Draco Constructions who actually pays the 20,000 or 200,000 old francs or however much that was in full for James Bond. So daddy came to save her again. And even then, she has this big problem with daddy. Daddy issues throughout this film. Yeah, she kind of gives this impression that she's in some kind of a trouble. And you're never actually told you told what yeah. trouble is. It's told. It's told. When what, what, what is the trouble? Well... When we get to Draco from Draco Construction's uh, headquarters, Draco tells the history of Tracy. So, w- wife died, was English, and uh, Tracy is a Corsican English. The wife was from Corsica. In the book, you see that uh, she had a relationship with somebody, and Draco says it in the in the film. She married an Italian count who killed himself in a Maserati. With one of his mistresses, which is kind of weird. Yep. What? What? what yeah, I, I'm not sure what what that mistress then means here, but I understand she was talking about Teresa and this Italian guy. In the book, they also have children. Oh. Yeah, and then the child dies. Oh. And that happened okay. only recently, but that is not told in the film. So the viewer is kind of left to figure out for themselves. Pretty much throughout the movie. I'm I'm fine with that. But looking from the background that she has, which is also kind of explained in the in the scene, that well, Draco is leading this one of the biggest crime syndicates in Europe, and for most of her life, she has been kind of being opposed of I guess what her father does, and has been keeping the distance, and being very disagreeable. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, disagreeing with your father on how he does his business. I, I guess that is grounds for you to drowning yourself. Well, well, she didn't succeed in that. I mean, I say she she only got ankle deep. Yeah, you you kind of are actually left to wonder what the hell she was actually trying to do. Yeah, because James Bond didn't know. What she no, was, yeah, yeah, precisely. He didn't know. I mean, he was just trying to stalk her. <laughs> that, that, that's true. <laughs> that, yep. 
Which, w- in- once again, you know, you you have to keep in mind that despite all of this stuff, James Bond still is the best agent that Britain's Secret Service has to offer. So that kind of raises a lot of questions about the other double O agents. Yeah. Yeah, if they are worse. Yeah. But <laughs> in the book, Bond explains that he kind of gets turned on by ladies who drive the car as wildly as Tracy does. So, yeah. Well, I don't know if you heard it, but in the car, Bond is going to himself like, yeah. So that <laughs> maybe he got some excitement out of that. Passing by his car. This guy just gets creepier and creepier. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> and it gets worse, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I admit it. Well, a Playboy magazine even appears in the film. It it, it appears, and Bond staying true to Lazenby as a man ends up actually stealing the, you know, the photoball playmate. Yeah, but uh, we're in Universal Exports, and Louis Maxwell apparently did like George Lazenby quite a bit, maybe the most out of the older Bond actors. Well, he was the young guy around, like... The guy is, what, 28 when playing James Bond right here. And has this kind of a model charm, I guess. I I like how Moneypenny kind of playfully turns down Bond's offer of cocktail party this time. And not totally just sucking to him like in the early Connery Bond films. He's like, just take me already. Yeah, but she soon regrets it because he gets married and she did <laughs> <laughs> that, And she that, cracked yeah. it. Moneypenny, you screwed it up. So she should have, she, she should have taken the damn offer. Yeah, but then again, it's James Bond, and he's having sex with at least three ladies during this film. Yeah, who needs it? Who needs that? <laughs> yeah, well, well, also part of the plot of this film, a big part of the plot of this film is the fact that the dad wants Bond to fuck his daughter in order to, like he puts it, to dominate her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> she needs to be dominated that she doesn't have a chance to kill herself. Oh. She needs to be kept in check. You know, it's the old misogynist um, views coming out in this film. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And M is playing very cold M in this film. He has never been as cold as he is in this film. And tells Bond that uh, Operation Bedlam needs to end the search of Blofeld. So nothing has been happening regarding that for two years. No results in two years. And right now Bond, of course, is starting to get results at the same time. Yeah, of course. And we have the Sean Connery tie-up scene. Which, again, I'm sorry to go back to it, but he only got results out of pure luck. Because it was only through coming down the beach at the correct time that he ran into Teresa. Yeah. That he did. So, because of this, Bond wants to leave Her Majesty's Secret Service, just like George Lazenby wanted to after this film. But Moneypenny changes the document to say that uh, he instead wants a few weeks leave, and thing is settled. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bond has this long-running tradition that he either resigns from the Secret Service or he actually goes rogue on Sun Premise. And I, I must say, tell you that the premise here, the reason here why Bond decides to resign, the fact that 
he am tells him that he's taking him off from the Blofeld hunt and is going to give him another assignment. And that's why Bond is resigning. It's kind of the most idiotic and meaningless reason Bond can come up with. Well, the character is just as arrogant as the actor. Pretty much, yeah, I, I, I would say. And that would be kind of a taking the reading kindly to Bond. Because in in all honesty, what the hell were you actually expecting? Like the fact that the, the Secret Service has even had Bond for two years simply hunting leads on Blofeld is I, I would say it's unheard of in spy movies altogether, and I would even hazard a guess, even though I have no facts or knowledge whatsoever to back this up, that's kind of how Secret Service does not do its business in real life either. Well, it, it took the US government like 15 years to catch Bin Laden, right? That is, but did they really use their top man on the hunt or for that entire time, or did they simply, you know... Put it down the ladder to these smaller groups, smaller operatives, whoever just happened to be on the desk on the given day. Because Bond is supposed to be a super agent, practically. And also one of the few agents in the Secret Service roster who has the license to kill. That kind of a being how the double O agents differ from your regular agents. And now they are using this basically government-trained assassin to simply gather clues on wherever Blofeld might be for two fucking years, instead of, you know, putting him to kill someone. Hmm. Well, and it never said anything that Bond is not doing also something else at the same time. Well, it doesn't say that, but you kind of get that feeling seeing how extremely pissed off Bond is for the fact that he's being taken off the Petroleum case, and by the notion that M makes that a double O agent or an assassin is useless if he doesn't have a mark. Which kind of a hints that Bond really hasn't been used or to do anything for those two years. Mm, just gambling at casinos and stalking ladies at the beach. Yeah, which I would believe, going by the previous films on the franchise, that Bond is actually using the Secret Service credit to pay his gambling and hotel rooms, which once again... Well, it, it's the exact same situation which played out in the pilot episode of the Bond parody TV series Archer. The agent yeah. using the company credit to a kind of an outrageous limit to simply finance his own lifestyle. So obviously Am is going to pull Bond off from the Petulam case. That shouldn't be any surprise to Bond, and most definitely not something that Bond would resign over. Or he just pays from his own balance, because he is at least one of the top agents, if not the top agent. Of course, in Casino Royale he uses the company credit, because we're talking about insane amounts of money. I don't think he needs the money, because if you recall, Draco offered him $1 million to take out his daughter, and he refused. Well, he would be supporting kind of a draconian organization if he would accept it as well. Well, I mean, he married his daughter in the end. Yeah, so... So if she would have stayed alive, he would have had con contacts with him anyway. Yeah, but had he accepted the $1 million, then 
that would not really look good for for Chelsea. Well, back in the day when when the offer of one million dollars was on the table, Bond still hadn't resigned from the Secret Service. So basically, he still had the access to the company credit. In that way, you can actually say that he, at that point of the film, he still didn't need the money because Secret Service might have been paying. Basically, he's a living. And then we get the bullfight, and obviously a kind of a sport that should be removed from the face of the earth, but which was still very common in those days. Nowadays, countries like Spain are trying to get rid of it, but it's still popular, so it remains. Have you ever gone to bullfights or any experience with bullfighting? Nope. Nope. Good. But I visited Finnish bar, and that is pretty close. <laughs> a Finnish bar? Yeah, a bar. Ah. I've been to three Finnish bars. And they all fucking sucked, I would believe. You know, one really did. Yeah, that's kind of a running theme on the pub circles in Finland. And in the scene, it's the goal of Draco from Draco Constructions to bring Bond and Tracy closer to each other. But Tracy wants this to go straight to business and tell James Bond what he wants to know. Like, really... And uh, Draco from Draco Construction tells that there may be a connection with Blofeld and a lawyer in Bern, Switzerland, by name Gumbold. Gumbold, hmm, Gumbold. And uh, Tracy leaves the scene and cries for some reason. I'm not sure what was really there to cry for. Uh, me, me neither. And Bond, of course, follows her again. Yeah. Once again, being semi-creepy and continuing the fashion... But semi. Well, th- this is not as creepy following as in the pre-credit scene. Like, yeah, no, no the, what, what, what's uh, creepy about it? It's Bond trying to convince Tracy that this is not how it looks like. That he really cares about Tracy. Which also is kind of a weird notion on Bond's end. Because what is Tracy to him? And well, to continue with that note, what is Bond to Tracy, really? But they met each other only twice before this point in the film. And okay, on the first time, Bond might have saved Tracy's life. So maybe some first time affection lingers somewhere under the current there because of that. But, you know, not counting in that this basically is some grade A love at the first sight bullshit. Right here. Maybe. Maybe we could have been shown more affection in the previous scenes. But uh, for me it's okay. Because sometimes there are these situations where I think Bond shows a lot of affection in the casino towards her. And is not. And wants to listen to her all the time. And then Diana Rick's character Tracy is not as hot for Bond at the moment. But then again she's the one who pulls Bond's head to the bed for this kissing and it cuts away from the scene. So something is going on. I always counted that as simply, you know... Having some fun. Having some fun. As a simple Mm. sexual attraction. Not something you would eventually be all in tears about. It's interesting to have these new perspectives because I've been watching this just for my whole life and I kind of accepted everything from the beginning because I was a kid, so I have perhaps a weird outlook on the film, I admit. 
And now, now luckily you have the two of us here to spoil you the fun. Yeah, who knows how I would see this <laughs> film for the first time at this age, but this never really bothered me. Yeah. But what does maybe bother me is the following so-called lovers scene when we do have the we have all the time in the world tune playing and there's this there's this montage of them doing all this romantic stuff being in the yeah, park and riding horses and yeah it's incredibly cheesy uh, what, what is weird about it is that after this it doesn't take long until tracy says in the car that it it may come to a marriage at some point so it felt a little bit too quick for me Always. Well, at least in that scene, they are actually doing stuff. Yeah. And apparently some time passes by. So they are together more than just one night. Something very important that could be mentioned about the music here. We Have All the Time in the World was actually written for this film. Did you know that? No. No, I was certain that it was taken from, you know, some record. Yeah, it was uh, John Barry and uh, Louis Armstrong collaborating on this song, particularly for this scene. Is this the first song with um, male vocals? No. Oh. There's Thunderball and Matt Monroe. Or is it the Three Mice and a Cat song from Dr. No? <laughs> yeah, no, good point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, well done. But yeah, it was a collaboration and it didn't even become a hit after this film. Actually, it was in the 90s when it started playing somewhere and suddenly it was a big success on the radio. I have a hard time believing that this song is a success in anywhere. What? That's a very unpopular opinion. It's kind of catchy. It, It might be, but the song does fucking nothing for me. I think it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) <laughs> so we we have the what? whole spectrum here yeah. from from abysmal to okay to great oh. yeah. <laughs> the, the diversity of this podcast and its opinions <laughs> is a kind of a magnifying this is a weird episode <laughs> this is a weird with a weird episode. film a very weird film for you guys then we get to gumball scene yeah for Bond finds the, the playboy magazine yeah. yes yeah <laughs> Bond finds playboy magazine scene <laughs> I, I, I could I could believe that the magazine contacted Southman and at first asked do you want to renew your subscription to our magazine <laughs> this scene when I saw this film for the first times from my father's VHS I did not have the Gumball scene in it and there were some <laughs> other yeah yeah and there there were a couple of other scenes that were completely cut from it. So there's so there's two possibilities. There was a more TV fit edition of this film made for Finnish television by Finns, or it's my father fucking it up the recording after the commercial breaks. But I would think that since he's successfully taped every other Bond film, that this was some Finnish cut. It, it could, knowing the Finnish censorship, during the time when this would have come out, it's very easy to believe that that is some kind of a Finnish cut once again. Okay, yeah, Gumbold was cut, and so were the Playboy titties. So basically this movie was even more confusing to you when you first time saw it. Yeah, but uh, um, 
I don't know if it's so confusing if we leave Gumbold out actually, because in the next scene he goes to M and then he tells M basically what he just did. He went to Gumbold and there's a connection with blah blah blah. And for sure, the first act or the second act of this film could do with a little trimming. It could. It, it most definitely could. I I do have a problem with the pacing of the film and kind of how extremely slow it feels at Are times. you actually attacking the first editing job of John Glenn in this franchise? Yup, I guess I am. <laughs> By the way, Gumbold sounds like a great Bond villain name. They should use that and just get rid of Blofeld because they fucked it up, Inspector. Who knows? Who knows what happens in the next Bond film? Yeah, the return of Gumbold. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Age 120 or something. Gumbold goes for a lunch break and Bond's colleague Campbell sends him a briefcase with a safe cracker device stored inside. And there's a storage container or something outside and it says Draco. So maybe Draco helped out with this one as well. Draco from Draco Constructions. I guess, but that would also be kind of weird. Seeing how I I believe that this other guy is still supposed to be a secret service operative. Like he's supposed to be some kind of a Bones colleague or something like that. Who, who the yeah. dude is, is never made any clear, but he does take part in what happens in the film every now and then. Yeah. Or at least tries. And if he's an active operative on Secret Service, that would mean that at this point Secret Service is, well, pretty directly doing cooperation with a known criminal figure. Yeah, his name is Campbell, and he is Bond's colleague, and his name is never mentioned, and he's very much left to the background, as you said. In the book, he is more explained, even to the level of sheer awkwardness. There is some scene where Campbell is begging Bond to drop his role and Bond is just carrying on the role and Campbell is saying, please tell him who I am or something like that. And I have to say that the more I read Ian Fleming, like, oh my god, I... Uh, these sound exactly like the kind of novels that somebody would write who has no idea what happens in the Secret Service. But maybe he's close to the reality because I haven't been a secret agent myself but uh, yeah it, yeah. of course you would say that Carrie <laughs> so we established the connection with Count Bluechamp it's a title that Blofeld wants in his vanity and the vanity ruins his whole Peace Gloria operation is it M's home that we cut to when Bond is coming to talk about oh that's a uh, Peculiar version of the Nimbalis Polychlorus. Um, I, I guess it is seeing how lasery uh, M is. I, yeah. Uh, I don't know. M is so cold here once again. Almost completely ignoring him. He's an ass. Yeah. Yeah, Bond gets no love from M in this one. Yeah. And for me it feels like the age difference is showing more and more. That the less M has respect for Bond, the younger he gets <laughs> in this franchise. But we could throw in the story from the shootings where Bernard Lee and George Lazenby were riding a horse. And then George Lazenby started to put in some more speed to his horse and started chasing Bernard Lee's horse. And then Bernard Lee's horse and Bernard Lee 
went into some roses and Bernard Lee cut his leg pretty badly. George Lazenby felt horrible, but Cubby apparently never forgave him for that. Uh, maybe this was shot after that accident. I, I love how every story you tell about the Lazenby's <laughs> life, he, uh, it's just a collection of Lazenby being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever could have gone wrong did go wrong. So Bond explains that there's a letter addressed to College of Arms in the city of London with the request that the try to re-establish the Bluechamps claim to the title and Sir Hilary Bray, a baronet, a famous genealogist, has responded to him that they should meet in person. Bond has already examined his own family tree as to use it as the cover and act as the representative of the college. So, as we've already noted, he's, Bond is very, very creepy. But so far that creepiness hasn't been very destructive. It's his own creepiness that eventually blows his own cover. Yeah, but first we have to go through the Sir Hilary Prey scene. I think this is one of the scenes that they could have got shorter, even shorter. And there's a lot of this very non-colloquial language, very formal language, and a lot of history, that kind of information that we don't need at all in this film. And it's annoying me. I know, I on the other hand liked a lot about this scene, okay. and these scenes where Bond really is playing this character, and he's trying to be someone else than Bond, James Bond, because... Yeah, that, but the original Sir Hilary Bray scene. <sighs> yeah, maybe. It didn't bother me because it's something like 30 seconds, like pointed <clears throat> out. Yeah. And I I did enjoy a lot what was going on in the scene. Ba- basically, Bond actually trying to be subtle and trying to find some other way to the back, uh, bad guy's layer than simply going through the front door. Bond here on this moment is being the most spiest and the most smartest than he often is in any of the Bond films. Like, this is Bond actually yeah. doing some spy stuff. Yeah, this is very close to the novel. And it's a film where it was emphasized that or Peter Hunt wanted to get rid of all this supernatural edge stuff and get back to the basics without gadgets because they didn't need any gadgets and there are no gadgets really to talk about in the novel either. And you don't need them because the story is good. Well, it is. I I can't say if it's good, but it, it's a story and it is. I'm, I'm willing to meet you halfway here. Yeah, and it was Peter Hunt who had the idea of dubbing George Lazenby in the moments when he's playing Sir Hilary Bray. And he only found out that he had been dubbed when he was in the premiere. Where oh! He, uh, yeah. Oh, that's cold. <laughs> That is. I'm a superstar, don't you know that? How dare you? <laughs> your face may be, but not your voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he apparently had been trying hard to learn to speak like Sir Hilary Bray, but he was then scrapped. I, I think he got voice lessons. I'm pretty sure he, he got voice lessons. Yeah, he did get voice lessons just for being James Bond as well, because he had a very thick Australian accent and had to get rid of that one. So the voice teacher put a stick in his mouth 
and that's how he learned the English accent. Or, but it's not very convincing here, is it, Tom? Nope. <laughs> Much far from you, darling. I feel really bad for George George Lazenby. <laughs> well, don't. He did an okay job here. Oh, just okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's okay. It's okay. It's of course nowhere near the charisma of Sean Connery, in my opinion. Well, um, but it's I, okay. I mean, he was offered the um, second Bond film, so 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 he must have done okay. Yeah. Yeah, the problem was that he didn't want to do anything, so... He doesn't have the same charisma, I think he doesn't walk as well, but he is slim. He's able to do the athletic stuff. He does some running. I mean, it's okay. I I, I buy him. I buy him. But still, they're doing the mistake in this film where they try to make him more like Sean Connery, and even instructed so. Which they should have just forgotten about. Just like George Lazenby wanted to be the George Lazenby's adaptation of James Bond. They can, I can kind of understand why why they were so hesitant. And I, why they wanted Lazenby to be more Connery. Because this is kind of the first real point in the franchise when, when the actor of Bond has been changed. And well, f- following the fact that Connery had made it a mega franchise, had made himself to be the James Bond. It's I, I can understand why they were so afraid of how the audiences will take this new Bond. And because of that wanted to smooth things over by trying to force Lazen BB as Connery as he can get. This was a decision that was made early on. They were thinking should they go with somebody that is going to bring another kind of a spin into the role or are they just going to look for another Sean Connery and they decided to look for another Sean Connery. But still not Sean Connery enough perhaps. I mean there are moments where it's super obvious that they're trying to do that thing. Well even the goddamn hair is almost the same. But enough of Lazenby comes through still in some moments. So regarding George Lazenby I just wanted to say a little bit more that I feel that he is not that much even Sean Connery in this film. Some of the wisecracks, or some of the way that he plays the role, is actually aching more to Roger more than Sean Connery. Would you agree with that? I kinda would on my end. Yeah. In in many ways, I, I feel that Lazenby's Bond is kind of all over the place. In, For- in, in some way... Scenes, I can very much see he, see the emphasis from the director's and producer's side to make him appear like Connery. And at times it does seem like, well, he's trying to act like Connery. At times, well, him simply being himself, this being Lazenby's Bond, is very obvious and comes through very strongly. And like you mentioned, there is the third times when... He is more closer to Roger Moore than to Sean Connery. So I kind of see three different versions of Bond being given to us here. In terms yeah. of appearance, I don't think I don't think there can be any doubt. I mean, um, Lazenby asked the hairdresser, the barber, to give him the haircut of Sean Connery. Yeah, so some of the performance of Lazenby is such that I would definitely not see Sean Connery pulling it in the same way at all. This kind of a carefree and after fight, just eating beluga and continuing your day. That's more Roger Moore. 
Or it's at least it's more Diamond Star Forever-ish than the past Sean Connery. But still, yeah, he makes it his own. So I, I think you need to edit out the um, the part where I said <laughs> because we don't really want a lawsuit, do we? <laughs> I think we have let these kind of things go through in the past. <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> what we have left go through in the past? Well, so- something that could be giving us a lawsuit in the worst possible scenario. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it this time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then we get to Myren. Campbell is tailing James Bond as he meets Ilse Steppat playing Irma Bunt. So we take the helicopter ride with Irma Bunt, the personal assistant of Blofeld, and the bobsled is established because we see a shot of the bobsled from the helicopter, and we'll get to that in the end. And fake Bray, fake Hillary Bray, he is always complaining about something, did you notice, and making things as awkward as possible, and trying to poke fun with the of the villains whenever possible. Yeah, like, and, and he's really yeah. hard work. When he's talking to Blofeld, he... He wants Blofeld to know that the uh, job of the uh, getting the title or whatever he wants is really is going to be really really hard work and difficult. Yeah, but um, also uh, he was really excited about the work. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, uh, for for Hillary or the persona of Hillary, o- of course, the work would be very exciting since well, that's what he's supposed to be studying altogether, and now he has this important prime task to make certain is this one guy who he he claims to be yeah and we get to Pis Gloria the location that in my understanding was built for this film but then it was not removed it was kept there and made into an actual restaurant and it's there even now and the James Bond radio podcast is there now or just recently visited it. Who's up for Peace Gloria trip to Switzerland? If I wouldn't, <laughs> if I wouldn't be so goddamn broke, I, I most definitely would be interested in. So, you know, what, once we get that Patreon running for this podcast, I'm all yeah. for yeah. it for us visiting the location. Yeah, yeah, Henrik is really trying to push it hard now. I, I, I'm, try- I'm trying to monetize us the best I can. After we've paid off all our lawsuits, we can perhaps consider <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. <clears throat> so, shooting in Peace Gloria commenced on October 21st, 1968. And the first shot, apparently, is when George Lazenby walks the steps up to the room where the ladies are, the alpine room. But yeah, you know, and the weirdness, I think, really kind of steps up a level here, you know. Really? Yeah, I think so. I think George Slays and Bits is just stepping on some steps. Well, you know, wherever is George Slays and the weirdness and creepiness isn't that far behind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) But let's talk about Irma Bunt. Who is she really, in your mm. opinion? Is it the lover of Blofeld? What's her career history <clears throat> at Spectre? By the way, another another side tangent, which we are so good at. The Spectre is never once mentioned during this film. So already I can see that there was this some kind of a legal problem with this 
Kevin McClory, who made things extremely difficult for the Bond crew after Thunderball. But anyway, who is Irma Bunt to you? What does she do outside of scaring the shit out of Bond in his room? She kills wives. <laughs> I I would say that he that she is to Blofeld what Moneypenny is to Bond. Oh, yeah. <laughs> could be. That's just a really sickening thought. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not gonna leave your mind anytime soon. No, thanks for that. Thank you. <laughs> so Grunther, this old Russian wrestler, Yuri Borienko, is going to pick up Sir Hilarious at 7 p.m. Hence his alter ego Bond has time to inspect places. And Lazenby was not used to acting, of course, and when having the fight training, he knocked this Russian wrestler silly and uh, busted his nose. After this happened, Harry Saltzman saw this with the guy laying on the ground and said to George Lazenby, We're going with you. And he was chosen as the James Bond. Rumor has it that after we're going with you, he said that about time. But um, he was already halfway through the film at that point, so... No, no, I'm talking about the dif- different tests that they ran for him before they started ah, shooting. Ah. And Grunther was there. I wonder if George, if this is how George Lazenby came to the film crew dinner party at Pitts Gloria. Stepping at, up the steps and then just like a Terminator scanning the room and who are in the room and then just standing there. Irma Bunt notes that we do not use surnames of the clinic uh, that's right, dear Irma. Should use like number system instead. You use it in Spectre anyway. Uh, like girly number eleven with chicken allergy. Report to lunch. Pronto. Wow. So weird. I cured you of your chicken fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess ve- vegans could have a, f- a few words to throw about that. <laughs> that that actually was really silly when I was watching this film. For, for this episode, the whole, whole notion that what Blofeld is doing in, in his mountain base layer is basically curing vegans. <laughs> Holy fuck. Curing vegans from their sick illness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, what would vegans say about the, the vanity of this girl, like, wasting money to be in a clinic in... Switzerland just so that she can continue on a chicken farm eating chicken. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it was an important family enterprise. Who knows? Maybe. You know, she, in the film, that girl was from Lancashire, which is the county just next to mine. Yes. She's a Ruby Bartlett from Lancashire. Morecambe yeah. Bay, actually. Yeah. Have you been in Morecambe Bay? No. Oh. Maybe someday. Now, during dinner, this is where there is coming this a slight stiffness coming on into the shoulder <laughs> of James Bond. Must be the altitude. In fact, during the filming of this scene, the effects crew, they put a huge German sausage under the kilt of George Lazenby. And when the girl actor had to put his hand there, he would touch this big sausage and still this girl actor pulled this scene off without any kind of facial reaction. And the crew in the background was like jaw dropped. Like, wh- wh- how is it possible that you didn't have any reaction? And afterwards, 
she just uh, whispered to James Bond something like, I, George, I think you don't have any pants on. But who knows how many of these stories are true, but <laughs> that's amazing. They, they wanted to play like a joke on her, of course. Blofeld meeting. They go through the antisepsis and uh, it was Cubby's idea to have Telisaval as Blofeld. Peter Hunt, Hunt loved the idea. So let me get this straight, guys. The clinic is making its own vaccines, each modified for each individual case for each patient. Well, I suppose they are doing none of it there. They're just building the whatever. Virus Omega. Which once again kind of begs the question, how open is Blofeld's operation here? Because the clinic itself is kind of being marketed towards the, well, some kind of a consumer, since the clinic has all these patients in it. So someone has to tell other people about the clinic, and, well, the cover for the for the virus Omega is that the clinic is making vaccines. But at the same time, isn't making vaccines heavily regulated? Exactly. So, yeah, that's that's one of my points here. The guy is just making his vaccines here without any regulation whatsoever. Mm, yeah. So, Blofeld would be the first one to blow his cover immediately here. Yeah. I, I guess he, everything yeah. is possible in Switzerland. You can si- simply set up a sh- shop and start making vaccines. Land of the free. <laughs> 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 they learned it from this film. Blofeld has an interesting costume. I want this jacket. He kind of looks like a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> then we get to Bond hacking his own door because he is kept as a prisoner at evening time, it seems. Yeah, surely the inhabitants of the um, hilltop compound knew that something dodgy was going down when they didn't, when they couldn't even leave after dark. Well, right, yeah. And the funny thing is that when you try to get into anyone's room, you just push this little button and <laughs> oh, the door opens. Yeah. So uh, if that's so, the case, then there has to be like in, insane regulations and security that they have to put these people inside the rooms at some particular time and then just keep them locked there. That's nice. You can get in, but you cannot get out. <laughs> yeah, perfectly normal clinic. <laughs> James Bond takes off the kilt. And yeah, it is true <laughs> that you don't have any pants under your kilt. Or ooh, maybe, th- I don't know what was under there. Or wasn't. Who knows? Forever a mystery. <laughs> so, Ruby Bartlett tells the story that Fräulein Bund actually met her in London. So, god damn, the Fräulein Bund and this whole Spectre organization is really making some effort to find these ladies. Apparently the ones that they can control the most with all these rooms that they can't get out of and they will they want people who are okay with that shit. <laughs> and and traveling all around the world to get this from different locations so that they can spread the virus omega then after Christmas. Which Carva begs the question, how much money is Blofeld now burning in order to create and spread the virus omega? Well, apparently not enough, because the only center where he can connect to those girls via this speaker is via this operations control center in Peace Gloria, and there's no backup plan for any place where to contact (laughs) them. Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
<laughs> and that begs the question, how actually is he supposed to contact all these girls once they leave the compound? Like, is, he, is the master plan here that he will call, call all each girl separately and pay the long distance phone call bills and pray that the phone lines ain't broken the day that when he wants to launch his attack? Or will he, will he send them letters or how? How do you actually contact them? Because the girls are kind of being sent out and around the world. So... Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So the hypnotism apparently doesn't work on landline phones. You have to do it via the radio only that he custom made for them. <laughs> yeah, with, with the custom made tapes. So... Yeah. God <laughs> and, the, and the worst part here is that that Blofeld, in the end, Blofeld actually has a legit business going on with this health clinic. Like, he could be making money with this shit. Instead, he's yeah. simply burning insane amounts of capital to pull off this elaborate scheme. Well, he would get hell of a lot more money if he would be trying to convince the UN that he has the keys to destroy the fertility from all the plants and animals of the world. And that leads us to the point of what is Blofeld's plan, because he is not aiming for cash this time. Yeah. 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 But, but um, first, yeah. But first, uh, C- Campbell has apparently seen something advertised, and he's very adamant to get to the advertised place. Also, in my view, this scene where Campbell tries to take the lift from Birk to Schildhorn directly was cut from the Finnish TV airing in the early 90s. It most definitely was not on my dad's recording anyway once again, and I first saw this scene from the DVD in like 10 years later. And there is this curling scene where Sir Hilary Bray or James Bond says that about the joining the curling that wouldn't that be frightfully energetic? So seems like a hardcore member of the leisure class, like not putting himself in the way of any kind of physical activity because by god that would be so proletarian or working class can't do that shit no in shit defense it kind of does make sense here since bond is trying to be someone else than james bond so now he is complaining about everything that bond bond himself would be okay with and is yeah. But doing his best to be as anti-James Bond as you can be. That he does. He also falls falls on his ass with the curling. <laughs> the, the, the only Bond thing that he is actually is not willing to let go is having rampant amounts of casual sex wherever you go. Yeah. And there we get to this idiot Bond who starts convincing Blofeld Immediately after Bond's colleague has been taken away, that that Sir Hillary would like to have some fresh air away from Peace Gloria for the afternoon. What a great timing! <laughs> yeah. And then he makes another stupid mistake because the archives, of course, will be closed for Christmas, so they can't go to Augsburg. And even um, third mistake, as you said, flirting even more openly with everyone at the clinic, even the fucking 
curling scoreboard guard is confused in the background. <laughs> Even he's looking at what the fuck, dude. And, <laughs> and, and, and to actually continue with that that scene, it's I'm I'm actually I'm I'm like I'm honest to God. I'm shocked at exactly how sex maniac Bond appears in this film. Because he, he goes from one girl to the next. While the he's same, having same, a serious relationship with this while he's girl. having While he's having a serious relationship with the love of his life. But on top of that, he's doing each girl kind of a right ne- next to them. Like he, he goes into one room, has sex with a lady and shoots his load all over the hypnotic walls. Not confirmed, the, not shown in this film. No, no, well, where do you think it will lead? Well, Tom had the, the theory that uh, he didn't have any sex with these clinic ladies. Yeah. The, the ladies wouldn't be smiling that openly had there not actually been very good sex. But, but again, we don't see the sex, so we can't know for that sure. Is true. It, it is very heavily implied, and it is implied in every Bond film, and we have taken Bond as a man who has a lot of sex. It is implied, we cannot confirm it, and I think Tom is here being the most laboratorian that we have here tonight. God damn it, I'm, I'm sticking with my thesis that sex <laughs> did happen, and right after sex, Bond goes to another room and has more sex. And so if we he's, 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 he... setting, he's setting three dates, three separate dates, back to back. Four? Because of his wife? Well, or future wife. Yeah, yeah. But but the wife is not at the clinic on the moment. But Bond's timetable at worst as such that in course of three hours he will have sex with three different ladies. That means that he will have sex each <laughs> once in an hour for three hours. Wow. And, you know, talking as someone who has actually has shot his load on many of different places. I, I can actually say that you are not your most productive no. after <laughs> shooting your load once, and Bond is planning to do it three times in a row. Oh, yeah, legend. The man uh. has fucking problems, is what I'm getting at. He needs help. Am shouldn't put Bond on another mission. He should actually put Bond on a clinic. Like, for example, Blofeld's <laughs> clinic. So if, if we accept that Bond did have sex. But g- guys, can I interrupt just to say, where do you get this three and four ladies? I mean, when he's curling and saying nine, ten, he's obviously joking. And... No, he's not. Well, no, he didn't. Like it was pointed out, even the scoreboard guy was kind of a what the fuck. <laughs> well, whatever. But then there's the fourth mistake even. <laughs> Revealed later, when Blofeld says he even confused the location of the Blue Champ family tombs location. <laughs> yeah. That it's not in Aug- Augsburg, but it's in St. Anna Kirsch. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I do like the scene, because once again, it, it's very spy scene in the sense that Blofeld catches Bond's lie by simple mistakes that Bond makes. And, and that is relatively good spy shit on its own right. But of course, once again, that also means that Bond completely fucked up his background research. Yeah. And as Henrik said earlier, this is Britain's best agent. So, what are the other guys like? Yeah, and like <laughs> Bl- 
like Blofeld said, small slip. You cannot become a herald that easily, 007. But he didn't make small slip. He made <laughs> four huge slips. Yeah, th- this is like Bond's mistake here. They are not like that one mistake in Inglorious Bastards where the Nazis catch the spy by simply how he holds his fingers when he's ordering wine. That's a great film. That's a great film. And that's mm. a small slip from a fucking spy. Bond here is actually fucking up the whole process in major steps. I mean, I would have actually liked something more aching to the book in the sense that that we would see Bond like challenged in front of these baddies. Like he would be doing some slip that he, he would then ha- need to um, change. Like he would be about to take vodka martinis, shake and not stir it. And then, <clears throat> I mean, uh, that's what I had for last Christmas as a joke. I mean, get me this whatever cocktail. But there's none of that. It's just... Well, there are some obvious mistakes with the ladies, but for example, when he's talking to Blofeld, we don't know that he's making a mistake until we get Bond taken to the elevator room by Blofeld, basically. That, are, that also is a good notion. The Bond slipping up on his cover would actually be more interesting from the audience point of view. If you, if we would have been actually been shown the moments when Bond makes these slips and we have, would have been given enough material to understand that actually Bond is slipping up right now. Yeah. Yeah, so the ma- master plan is that during Yuletide or Christmas, Blofeld wants to send greetings to the UN from Spectre that Blofeld now has the scientific means to control or destroy the economy of the whole world which would be, of course, extremely useful for Blofeld. I don't know why, but that's the threat. And he's actually crazy enough to pull it off, apparently, if he doesn't get what he wants. Which is amnesty for his past crimes. Yeah, and they're ready to go forward with it, as we find out later on. (laughs) Um, Bacteriological warfare with infertility-spreading virus called Omega, which is, of course, completely ridiculous and somehow Bond knows what virus Omega is. Also a good point because it's it's a new super mega virus that Blofeld himself has been cooking up in his secret laboratory. But I mean couldn't Blofeld think of anything more uplifting for Christmas? Come on like he could have I don't know, bought an electric train set for the Secretary General of UN or... <laughs> <laughs> that that actually would have been a funny notion. I would have loved to see that one and the, and the shot on the Secretary of Defense's <laughs> face when he gets the electric train. <laughs> I mean, the train set would have probably hit too close to home because, of course, his former henchman died on the train, so he wouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably too traumatic for him. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Blofeld has the great idea that he deems that Bond will be quite useful for convincing the authorities that he will do what he preaches. So the best idea forward is to put him in a fucking elevator machine room. Pretty silly idea, in my opinion, because what do you expect? There's an open hole and he rips off his pockets and gets out of the engine room. I I do like this escape scene in, in yeah. the film. I, I think it's a very good scene, and it it does have a nice tension throughout it. And yeah, and Yukari, you have repeatedly stated out how Bond does not have gadgets in this film, and 
by God, I do actually merit the film for the fact that ca- there are no gadgets. Really? And Bond has to pull off this escape without using gadgets. Yeah. Well, if you count skis as a gadget, but it's quite, quite gadget-free. Bond has to survive on his own without the help of the quartermaster. But so the girls are being drugged in the Alpine room for the last hypno drug indoctrination thingy. With this weird kind of LSD psychedelic thing going on. Yeah, all the time. It seems to trigger something and... By the way, the jump from the cable line by Bond to the white metallic upper part of the cable car is ridiculous. Like, it's way too far to make the leap. He cannot possibly grab that cable car. No. Just saying. No, you make a good point. I mean, there are so many unrealistic moments in this film. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. But... So every night at 12 o'clock, the ladies must be next to the receiver to wait for the instructions. But that doesn't work because control center is then destroyed later on. And the stunt guy was Richard Graydon. He had a, simply a safety mechanism where he had only two hooks at the palms of his hand attached by nylon tape to his safety belt. So so it would have been probably gone if he had dropped. And he was about to slide all the way to the next town <laughs> but then another stunt guy stopped him because yeah the, the the line was so so slippery because of the ice it would have been four or five kilometers down unfortunately he didn't go all the way in his words he would have been still going yeah <laughs> true so the escape from gloria starts he uh, bond leaves from the Werkstatt, the ski workshop. Film finally kind of kicks into the gear or action gear at least. The back projections look pretty bad nowadays at moments because they don't have the same same black intensity, same colors, and um, there's a problem which is pretty noticeable if you look at it. It's, there's nighttime first, then it's like morning light, and then back to night. Uh, there's safety cable that is extremely visible when Bond is about to like fall off the cliff. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised that they didn't fix that out in like this in these new digital versions because they have made quite a lot of like very small changes to these films over the years I've noticed. Or at at least after they released the DVD special edition and they had yeah. done the 4K new print from the film. Did it- you guys think the chair scenes were far too long in this film? Oh yeah, yeah. Which which, which ones? I agree. Well, well, the well, the ski scene was far too long. I think. No, not at all. It's actually my favorite scene. This first, this escape from Peace Gloria when things go into gear and it's I, I, my, you, my favorite you, scene. If you count in, if you count the skiing scene as a one scene. From from the moment when Bond hops onto the skis to the end where basically the characters finally completely forget the skis and there is no more skiing in this film. Like the in, in the film's time frame this this covers Bond's escape from Piscoloria, car escape scene and the skiing on the next day. Technically, if you count all those scenes into one escape and one chase, that would mean that one chase in this film actually lasts for 25 minutes in total. Oh, no, no, it doesn't. 
No. And well, and the ski but... ski chases are my favorite scenes in the film. They could have actually have had could have had even more ski chase action. I I think we have, you know, more than enough ski chase action yeah. in this film. Yeah. No, no, no. Because the chase really in in this in the film's terms, the chase does not end until Blofeld causes the avalanche, which Barry's Bond and that is the that is the moment when the chase actually comes to an end. Up until that point, the chase is still ongoing. And that takes a hell of a lot of minutes in this film. Well, you could actually, uh, since we're talking about this and what uh, Bond actually accomplished at the location of Peace Gloria or Murren or Shieldhorn, what did he actually find out during this day? That was useful. Well, he now knows what the interiors look like, but apart from that, he—it's this is not confirmed. But I believe he did inform Am of Blofeld's plan before Blofeld made his plan clear and open and gave it out to the UN. Maybe, maybe. But when he arrives to the office, M has already received the call from Blofeld, or somebody has. Well, I'm I'm counting it. As such that Bond has been hanging around in M's office like at least for two days. And that would give Bond one day of delivering the news about Blofeld's plan. Plans before Blofeld himself makes them clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well. But outside, outside of that, something Bond did accomplish. Bond did find out that the mountain base is the only place where Blofeld can actually control this operation. That Blofeld does not have a backup plan. And if they simply destroy that one base, then that means that the whole plan will collapse on its own impossibility. Yeah, what a great plan. I mean, Bond was stupid here, but God, Blofeld maybe (laughs) wins the cake. (laughs) Yeah, especially taking into account that this is not the first time that Bond has been spoiling Blofeld's plans. Yeah, just to get back to the like skiing, because I love it so much. There was somebody called Willy Bogner hires the skiing cameraman who yeah. was actually skiing backwards with the camera and was able to, as a professional, bring us all these great front shots. And then there was an aerial unit. There was this other guy who did lose his leg while shooting the previous adventure, You Only Live Twice. And he just kept on doing this. They had this contraption. They had helicopter and then this wired kind of a thing that was tied under the helicopter to this guy. And he was able to take 360 degree camera work. So that was kind of a new at the time. He could free-flowingly move kind of like some kind of a drone, but even better than that. Just to talk about the different things that they have changed over the years, or at least at one point when they did do the changes, they did change... They have, of course, for these DVD releases, done it so that they have re-added the soundtrack to the audio, so it sounds better after it has been mixed and stuff. But they have also changed some sound effects, which is... I, I still hate that fact. There is one shot at the end battle at Peace Gloria, where this one black guy is being... Is getting the flamethrower in the corridor. Yeah, yeah. And in the original version, you actually hear it in the documentary for this one, which was made in 1999, I believe. You hear the original sound where the guy does this, 
sound and in the new releases it's not there it's something else and also also the gunshots at the end when Tracy gets killed the original sound for the gun was not this stupid put 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 it was or something like that so even though if they, uh, I, I get it maybe they were trying to make it more realistic that maybe this gun make this kind of makes this kind of sound but I don't like it they they shouldn't fuck with these things snowflakes yeah so escape from the city of Murren or the town whatever it is there we have the meeting with <laughs> uh, Tracy who somehow magically is able to find Bond and has been waiting for Bond and his dad gave the information that she should be waiting there to make contact with Bond. I have no idea how she pulled it off, but she's there. <laughs> it's so implausible. But yeah. Just the whole story is just... I don't know, it's so... I don't know. They should have built this before she appears there. Because when you first see her, you, the audience just goes like, Oh my god, what the hell? This is like that, that she was just randomly maybe skating there and now they randomly meet. But only in, it's only in the car when she explains that her dad was giving the instructions to go there but nevertheless it's ridiculous and one of the noisiest scenes in cinema history peter hunt wanted some real noise from the location when bond goes to fight the baddies into the bell or whatever shack it is it's like a barn for animals right with a lot of bells yeah cowbells right then there's the car chase there's this uh, eric glavitsa supervising the driving he was the guy in the car who does this like funny face, which they flipped when the car goes the other way, and they just replayed the uh, same shot from the previous shot, but flipped in a funny editing stunt. Got a big laugh in the cinema. But it does make uh, Henrik and Tom zero sense that Tracy makes the notion that uh, they should drive from, from Schildhorn to Feldkirch for the quote-unquote nearest post office, because Feldkirch is all the way in Austria, right after passing Liechtenstein, so that's like 235 kilometers or 145 miles. So closer than that would be Thun, Bern, Lucerne, or however you pronounce that, Zurich and many more. But apparently the film makes the case that Feldkirch is the next town, but it's not. In reality it's a place called Lauterbrunnen. And actually if you look at the signs in that place when they go to the phone booth, it has a sign about Lauterbrunnen, so perhaps it was filmed there. Why the fuck does the Spectre car explode? Your thoughts? I guess it was simply filled with gasoline. Like, not, not just the tank, but the entire car. Like, everybody sitting inside the car were kind of swimming in gas. And, <laughs> and the seats were filled with ga- gasoline. And it, it was simply gasoline, the car. Yeah. I, I like Irma Bund, Ilse Stepat in this role, she's so good. Knock him out of the way! Down here in the barn it is, Bond asks the question in the Pinewood Studios. Would you marry me? Or will you marry me? And she doesn't say yes. Yeah, she says, do you mean it? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> and, uh, interesting point about this scene. There, Before this question... Tracy asks the question <clears throat> that what actually did take place in this base of Peace Gloria? And then James Bond makes the notion that, well, I'm still working for Her Majesty's government, so I can tell you. Yeah, I guess so. The truth would be kind of dirty. Fucking girls left and right. Yep. 
Blofeld Posse arrives to the shack. Originally in the script, by the way, to Tracy proposes to Bond, but Peter Hunt didn't like it, and in his opinion, Bond should be the stronger character, so to speak. British press did make a lot of shit about this film to make George Lazenby look like the troublemaker, but I guess we have found out during this podcast that he kind of was a troublemaker every once in a while, at least. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, garlic, right? The garlic incident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Diana Rigg was on the opposite table somewhere and told to Lazenby, I suppose, as in good humor, that I'm going to eat something that has garlic, I hope you too. And this was before the kissing scene. And uh, will you marry me? And the fake news says uh, that's evidence that Diana Rigg really, really hates George Lazenby. Yeah, something like this. That's concrete evidence. According to Peter Hunt, though, everything was fine during the filming, and he didn't see any of animosity. Even though tensions may have been high at points, but nothing, no lasting problems whatsoever. Bond and Tracy's key chase. Yeah, let's get to that finally. So, one of the baddies had lots of guts. Apparently Tracy thought that wasn't a funny joke. This is really weird. Uh, you know, Blofeld sends three of his friends to death. He says, he says, you three keep going, and then he blows the avalanche. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> but it's never explained. Yeah. I, I, I guess even Blofeld knew that the way how his operation is costing him money, he has to cut some corners. I suppose, and, and they're shown to be buried by the avalanche. That was all for nothing. Yeah, can you think how it would, would be, or how it would feel to be a henchman in Blofeld's organization? Right, and the other baddies just keep on being loyal to him, I guess. Interestingly, this is actually a running problem with Spectre as an organization, and the fucking franchise has never been able to fix this, because this is a problem that also rises up in the Daniel Craig Spectre, where once again the organization is so psychotic and makes so less sense that it's hard to imagine why anyone would be a henchman or working for the said organization. Right. I can only think that they made a really bad effort of... Maybe these were the guys who were bumbling in the cowbell scene and this was the punishment. Uh, I'm maybe... trying to make excuses here, but it really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spectre is a criminal organization that somehow manages to be extremely powerful, extremely organized, despite the fact that if you work as a henchman in Spectre, your boss is the most likely cause of your death. Yeah. <laughs> and they actually did launch a real avalanche. Yeah. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please, please tell me that three actors actually also died during the shooting. <laughs> so it was something like three bombs and uh, about four kilometers wide avalanche. It was way bigger than they thought it would be. It was <laughs> astronomically huge. I, but, I, uh, I, I, st- I start to understand where Spectre actually came up as an idea. <laughs> and. Uh, well, there was this guy, Cliff Cully, who did some optical effects and added Bond and Tracy into a shot with the avalanche. But these particular avalanche shots were miniature shots. And uh, they needed these particular extra shots. Then we get to M's office. Um, they are ready to grant the amnesty. 
Why why is this Count the Blochamp title so important to him? Like, very curious thing, this snobbery. I must agree with M here. <laughs> it I is. Mean, it's ruining his organization. Uh, it, it, it's it's so stupid that even Blofeld, when when he explained his plan to Bond, and Bond asked Blofeld what he's about to demand, how much cash Blofeld wants this time. And Blofeld says that, that his demands are a surprise and, and even Bond is not going to believe his demands once he hears them. It it all kind of gives you the impression that Blofeld is just trolling people here. <laughs> like he, he created this whole plan simply to make a big practical joke. <clears throat> but I have to give it to Telis Avalas. I think he's a believable Blofeld and it's, it's by far my favorite Blofeld actor. I don't know about that because we because Blofeld is supposed to be low key, are we? And he doesn't have the that kind of creepy, monotonous tone to his voice as the as um, well, Christoph Waltz does. Um, the other guy, I don't know his name. I don't know if that would really work, like one on one with James Bond and Blofeld, if you have just this creepy guy with creepy voice acting as the chair and not being very menacing or mobile. Yeah, he he has the same hairstyle. I yeah, I I think Blofeld has to share the kind of sense of humor of Bond, and that happens with Savalas. I'm actually surprised that you didn't pick Donald Pleasance as your favorite Blofeld. Oh well, uh, I like him, but he's kind of this over-the-top Blofeld to the max, and just sits in the chair, stroking his pussy. Sorry, hit <laughs> 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 But uh, yeah, Bond wants them to d- destroy the center and to destroy the virus in that way and means of connection to the girls. But Bond is taking an insane risk by calling Draco from Draco Constructions to deconstruct the Blofeld base. Like, yeah, the, but uh, there is no way of knowing if there is a backup plan. But he just assumes there is no backup plan. But uh, so Bond goes rogue once again. <laughs> <laughs> once again. And... Um, and this In time, a... when he goes rogue, he actually knowingly works with known criminal operation. Yeah, he works with this this criminal organization lead now to destroy another criminal organization. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and another thing, like, does Blofeld really think that stealing the daughter of the leader of the, one of the biggest criminal syndicates in Europe will simply go unpunished? Uh, apparently, yes. Apparently, yes. And there they come, guns blazing. And but there's a deeper question: Why is MI6 enlisting the help of a criminal organization in the first place with Draco? But they have nothing to do with Draco from Draco Constructions. But they help bomb the um, compound. It 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 kind of comes down to whatever or not is Bond now really resigned from MI6. Like, is he a rogue operative? Which if he is, I guess MI6 should actually try to limit Bond's activities. Like, I, I, I don't know, put him on house arrest or something for at least a few days simply to prevent Bond doing the exact thing he ends up doing, which is working with a known criminal organization. Yeah. And if Bond really hasn't resigned, if Bond is not a rogue operative at the moment, of the attack that like you pointed out that would mean that mi6 is officially working with with a criminal organization 
And that would be a really bad situation for MI6. That would be a tricky one. There's also this poem by James Elroy Flecker about the Thaidon, O Master of the World, Thaidon. It's a good one, and they wanted to put it in to give the script a little bit of a more punch. The stunt guy, George Leeds, the stuntman, dreamed up the idea of Bond sliding on the ice with codes so he could just slide and fire everybody on the way. And this apparently got a huge cheer in the theaters. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if this would really play out in the real world. No way. Like, the, finally, the Red Crosses can have their mercy flight when they say they have the world press as the passengers, who would most definitely not report kindly on their restrictions on the on this special flight. But yeah, Bond takes photos of the girls in the Blofeld base. The music Bond, editing... The, actually, yeah. Bond takes photos of a wall map that somehow turns into photos of girls. Mm, granted. Which launches the whole Blofeld versus Bond chase, and apparently Murren there had been a bobsled track where three or four Englishmen got killed years earlier, so that track was closed. Peter Hunt thought it was a fantastic idea to use this particular slope. <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck. oh great, can we have it open again? Yeah, no. <laughs> it starts to sound like MGM and Peter Hunt. MGM is, is Spectre and Peter Hunt is, is Blofeld. Something like that. There was a shot where actually the bobsled got totally out of control and it wasn't planned, but they then integrated that into the script. So when the bobsled and Bond get off the track, they integrated that in it. There was a contraption of sorts also to make Blofeld get stuck to the tree on location, but they somehow couldn't pull off that shot and they finished it in studio. And he's branched off. And it's Five Star Hennessy, of course. But of course Bond never bothered to go check on Blofeld. Of course. And there he goes once again, killing his wife. Asshole. Which a- a- also looks stupid as fuck when you see it on film. Like Blofeld with, he- with his neck brace driving the car and pissed <laughs> off Irma blood sticking a machine gun out of the car's window. It's... <sighs> well, it, it was uh, revenge. Obviously, it, it 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 was revenge. I I get you know I I get the motivations and and the feeling behind the scene, but the way how the scene looks really makes me understand where the hell Austin Powers films got all their material. <laughs> and I mean, Bond didn't really show that much emotion, really. Not not what? really. Uh... They... You, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can make the excuse that Bond is in state of shock at mm. the moment. Uh, because of that, he can't show emotion. But but yeah, your notion is correct. Bond really does not show that much emotion at all during that scene when he's holding you know, his dead wife. There was actually... The, the first shot was so that Lazenby was crying a tear for camera there. But then Peter Hunt made probably the horrible mistake and thought that, no, James Bond doesn't cry, so let's take that one again. And they did it again. But I agree with you guys. I think it's more about timing in this scene, that George Lazenby's acting is quite not up to par, at least in this take. <coughs> uh, sorry, guys, a fucking mosquito ran into my mouth. <clears throat> yeah, the mosquitoes are killing me here. And... I thought it just quite 
wasn't as good as it could have been. I, mean, I don't know if it needed more emotion, but the, the timing was not as, uh, super strong. I I would have actually, I did want more emotion from this scene. One of the reasons for that is that I think it is one of the best endings to a Bond film ever. Yeah, at because, least you yeah. admit that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I really like what happens in the scene. And I really like the tragedy of it. And I really like that this scene highlights exactly how high price anyone close to Bond may end up paying because of who Bond himself is. So I, I like yeah. I, I liked the scene and I really would have wanted to have more emotion in it. Yeah, I see see what you're saying. One problem I have with this scene is that the film suggests that the the police on the motorbike is still there just watching watching what they're doing and not taking any kind of action. I think they could have yep. left the police out of that situation. But then again, it, he needs somebody to talk to. Well, yeah, he, uh, he, he could have simply talked to the, to his dead wife, telling his dead yeah. wife that it's okay, like you're just having a rest, or simply talk to himself. That would have been great. This kind of uh, talking to yourself at this moment for Charles Lysenby would have worked. Yep. Yeah. Actually, Peter Hunt planned initially to make the film in such a way that we have the crane shot when Bond drives off with Tracy in the Flower Avenue, let's say, and then roll the titles. And then the next James Bond, Diamonds Are Forever or whatever would have been that film at that point, would have started with the shooting of Tracy, and that's a horrible idea. I mean, this gives this film the punch when it doesn't have the happy ending. And that is actually... A notion that is completely, in my opinion, completely ruined by the world-famous Bond theme, which starts playing out pretty soon, right after this scene ends. And you're not the first one to make that notion. Um, Some have said that they should have just kept that John Barry track going in some form throughout the end credits. Most definitely. Yeah, when I think about it, that would have been fantastic. Never really gave it that much thought, but yeah, I can see that. And it, it, it is a shame in many ways that they didn't do that. Because th- this is the one Bond ending that really takes risks when it comes to the franchise, when it comes to the nature of Bond films. Because it's very easy to end a Bond film with this easy, kind of a light-toned, choking moment as they most often do. Where Bond is, you know, laying around with some lady and makes that one last funny one-liner or fun one last quip before the end credits, and this is co- totally complete opposite of it. This is almost antithesis of that ending. Yeah. If you think this scene was kind of necessary, because Bond's wife had to die. If she'd have been alive, that would have really ruined the future films. It would have, because even though I would have been extremely interested to see how they would have tackled the character from that point onwards, because... Yeah, because that would have eliminated most of his womanizing behavior, and he it, could have it, done yeah. that in marriage. Yeah. yeah, that would have been gone. And also, they might have had to kind of somehow address the situation how Bond can still be a double agent, how Bond can take these all these dangerous missions and return to spy work 
from which he now is retiring with his marriage because he made the promise to his wife that that he will leave the spy work and they will move somewhere else so the future films would have to tackle on why Bond returns to yeah. the spy world and how he now deals with the subject matter that his assignments as a double O agent yeah. very likely can get him and his loved ones killed. It wouldn't have worked. Well, they actually... Maybe so not. kind of hard to die. Well, they kind of in their own way in the next installment continue this, but it lasts like two minutes and then it's business as usual and campy as hell. Like, in the first one or two minutes, Sean Connery's Bond is chasing Blofeld and beating up baddies to find information where he is. But the wife is never mentioned during this film, and after this pre-credit sequence, it's all gone. That anger that he has for Blofeld, or the visible anger, and the, the movie is absolutely horrifyingly bad. I mean, the anger is still there because he drops him down a chimney. In... <laughs> well, uh, I have to say that had more to do with the producer's anger towards, again, this Kevin McClory guy who didn't allow them to use the name Blofeld. So they just used some bald-headed guy in this film. And it was the producer's fuck you to Kevin McClory uh, that we don't give a fuck about your Blofeld character. We will <laughs> rather drop him down the <laughs> chimney and carry on. F- fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, what what you said, Tom, in in order for the franchise to stay as it did, in order to the the Bond franchise continue in the same direction as the previous films had went, and to keep that framework that the franchise had, the wife really mu- had to die here. Yeah, true. Yeah, it, but... it, it was necessary. It, it was necessary, but that also highlights a problem within the franchise, which is that. The way how the franchise has been built and the male fantasy model that James Bond has been built up to be, this shows that it actually starts to limit itself. Like it, it, it limits what you can do with Bond as a character. You can't yeah. have you can't have Bond grow up emotionally that much yeah. throughout the films, or you start to run into problems with the themes and. And with the spirit of the franchise. Which already has happened with Daniel Craig. He never really grows up, really. He doesn't. And that that may be why now Daniel Craig era is seen somehow revolutionary. And they and people feel that there has been a tremendous advancement as a bond, as a character in Daniel Craig's films. Because they... A lot of unnecessary development. In many ways, yeah. Well, we see he has a kind of sex addiction, a gambling addiction. In the Daniel Craig films, we see he's kind of turning into an alcoholic as well. That he is. So it's taken a more somber, kind of sinister tone. It's gone from being fun to kind of more emotional. Yeah, Yeah. what, what is actually happening in the film is starting to affect the character of Bond. That and Bond himself also, in in Daniel Craig's Bonds. The character himself is more emotionally dead, and there is more of these darker aspects. Like you mentioned, there is the drinking, but there is also this, at times, a sadistically feeling glee that Bond takes in violence. Like Craig starts to feel as a Bond who 
actually enjoys hurting other people and whose pettiness and and vengefulness start to become the major kind of a defining characteristics of the character. This is something that was done in Dalton's Bones to to unfortunate effect on, you know, Dalton continuing in the franchise. But I, I think that in a way in Daniel Craig films it is even more highlighted those those darker and more violent aspects of the character. What, what do you mean unfortunate that Dalton continued in the franchise? Uh, because well Dalton only get to play Bond twice. So you wanted and to see more, right? Hell yeah. I wanted I wanted more Dalton. Me too. And many regard Dalton as the worst actor to play the character. <sighs> and I I in many ways I actually count that as a fault of the scripts or the fact that the scripts were that Dalton had were ahead of its time because I see a lot of similarities between Dalton's Bond and Daniel Craig's Bond. You're you're right, and yeah, the respect has grown in recent years when people have started to see this. But also, movies like Living Daylight say still were kind of they didn't know how to write for Dalton, or they were just lazily using something that they wrote or usually wrote for Roger Moore in the jokes department, and they were just doing the same mistakes that they were doing for Roger Moore in the beginning of his Bond stint, where like beating up the girl characters wasn't really something that fitted Roger Moore. That they did, that they did. Yeah, Living Daylights has also a lot of problems of these these kind of a transitionary Bond films, where yeah. they, they, they have a new actor who is not fit for the material that has been written the previous actor in mind. But with, with that say, I, I really, I, I think that when it comes to Dalton's Bones, I really do love A License to Kill. And one aspect that I really do appreciate in that film is is exactly how vengeful and even petty Bond is in that film. Like the whole aspect that the plot of the film is that Bond simply wants to kill this drug dealer to avenge his friend's death. Yeah, goes rogue once again, but totally. And it, it was the first time that he totally went rogue. And it was a new thing. The problem is that you cannot do this type of thing in every movie, but Dalton is really good at being angry. He is. And it, it, it is a shame that, that Dalton couldn't continue with the character. And also the fact that for... Years, if not even decades, Dalton had to take a lot of shit as being blamed for his portrayal of Bond, when now today those same characteristics are actually praised in Daniel Craig's Bond. I didn't even like Pierce Brosnan's statements in interviews where he said that James Bond had started to go too far from its roots when it actually did kind of exactly the opposite in Dalton's run and in his opinion, the James Bond series needed more humor. Well, I guess it depends from who you're asking from, but yeah, he's he's yeah, right yeah. in the sense that Goldfinger did the template, which did have a lot of humor. Again, Daniel Craig's Bond era is, is a cautionary tale of what happens when you take the humor in Bond films and simply run with it. Yeah. I mean, have you seen the GoldenEye teaser trailer where... Pierce Brosnan's Bond comes into the image, shoots the 007 text, and then says, 
Were you expecting someone else? And some Dalton fan commented, Yeah, I was actually expecting Timothy Dalton. Savage. Savage. <laughs> Favorite performance of On Her Majesty's? Hmm. Okay. And who first? Maybe Tom. As our guest, you will get the suffering first. Diana Rick, just for being really, really sexy. Hmm. Holy shit! Because Diana Rick also here. Well, that would be three Diana Ricks then. God damn it. I, 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 was, I was certain that I was going to be the only Diana Rick here. Yeah, even though I'm not completely convinced by Diana Rick's and George Lazenby's chemistry here. No, and I am not completely against Lazenby. I, I do have problems with his performance every now and then, but in general, I... I, I do respect what the Lazenby is doing. I, I do respect those moments when Lazenby is being Lazenby and he's doing his own take on the character. And I... A lot of people like to throw stones at, at the Lazenby. And I, I think that is uncalled for. Like, I, there, there is a lot of material, a lot of moments that I like with Lazenby as a Bond. Yeah, I mean, I think he did okay. He did okay, and for a first film, just directly jumping into a huge production like this, I think he doesn't. He does a good, good job. Yeah, um, as I've said, I think it's a very, very strange film, but um, nothing perturbs George Lazenby. Well, what's the strangest thing then? Like for me, maybe yeah, I I understand that it's tonally a lot different than previous Bond films, even. Well, the uh, the. the weird psychedelic hypnosis kind of mm. brainwashing I don't know it's... kind of pseudoscientific stuff yeah and the Playboy magazine was just it's kind of trashy and not really on James Bond's level of, of womanizing yep hmm. my biggest problem with the tone of this film is that I, I get this whiplash from the tone of this film kind of constantly like uh, I I feel that this is a film that does is not able to find its own tone. Like it, it tries to be all these different things. This is kind of a proto Bond in that sense. There is, there is the fact that Bond is is like Tom has pointed out is downright creepy throughout the film. And then there is the fact that there is this serious spy stuff, and then on the next moments there is this bad guy with his world conquering plot using the brainwashed women to crash the world economy. There is slow, not that much happening pacing. And then there is the Bond, the action-adventure film. Once again, aching back to the previous Sean Connery films. Lazenby's performance itself is kind of a shifting. It's... it's at times he's... He's Lazenby, at times he tries to kind of be Connery, and at times, like Connery pointed out, he is he's more in the direction of Roger Moore. Like, it's, it's kind of a, the tone just keeps on changing. It's, it, it's kind of a, it's, it's partly it's a serious, more realistic Bond take, and then on the right couple of scenes later, it once again is the evil bad guy who wants to conquer the world because reasons. Kind of like a mixed salad, kind of like a hybrid kind of. Film. Yeah, precisely. Mm, what raises to me most about the problems is that I think the 
like the f- at least um, the first hour of the film could have been a lot tighter. And the fact that for over an hour, it's very much a slow shifting film, kind of a drama film about the whole plot. And then it shifts finally into this action gear, which had not even been seen much before this, when the skiing starts. Yeah, and to top that, then there is the final attack at the end of the film, which is very big and extremely complicated. There is bunch of stuff happening at the same time like there is a flamethrower attacks and there is that one scientist who comedically tries to throw the acid at Bond even though there's the flexiglass in front of him that was weird and then there is the setting up the bombs to explode the whole place and that whole final fight even though it's it's kind of interesting in 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 the sense of what all that happens during it. But it, it is, once again, it is very heavily, it ex- e- extremely heavily contradicts the theme that the film and the feeling that the film has had previously. And especially, you know, the whole first act of the film. There's some problems with the, the music editing. I mean, it's kind of random. It starts here and there and then stops. and Kind of different cues taken from random part and then ended at random moment then there's the sped up video editing during fights which is which is kind of obvious not sure actually if they did something to that because as far as i remember from vhs times those fight scenes looked even worse so maybe they have kind of found the original footage perhaps and then sped it up again to make it look a little bit better i have no no idea but looks less goofy to me now for some reason then there is the dubbed dialogue cutting. I mean, in many moments of the film, it's obvious that the dialogue has been pasted in at the studio. And it's all this kind of uh, not-so-important stuff, I'd say. Like Bond sitting down and saying thank you as Sir Hilary Gray. Favorite scene? Huh. Henrik? I I will go with the cable car escape scene. I e- even though even though the logistics doesn't make sense in many of the moments during that scene, the jump is one thing. Also, Bond has some kind of a super pockets that can actually sustain the whole climbing and going back and forth on the wire and all all, all this stuff. I still did quite enjoy it. I think that. There was good amount of tension in the scene, and I, I did like it emotionally, and I did appreciate the fact that Bond was trapped into into a place, and he had to escape without his gadgets. Yeah, same here. Like this area of the film is the strongest part of the film because of the tension, and uh, for me, it would be the follow-up ski chase when John Barry's uh, soundtrack with that added synth starts uh, kicking into full gear when he escapes Peace Gloria and the baddies start shooting him. That's my favorite scene. Tom? As for my favorite scene, just just for the sheer comedy of it, I liked it when Bond was having dinner with the girls and he comes out with his classic line of, are you okay, Bond? <laughs> I'm just a, a little bit stiff. Otherwise, yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. That is one of the best one-liner Bond gives in this film, if not the best one-liner Bond gives yeah. in this real film. It's in the shoulder, guys. Shoulder. <laughs> Favorite quote? Will you take this one, Curry, first? 
Yeah, the stiffness is is my favorite quote. <laughs> <laughs> Guess I'll go with just this. This never happened to the other fella. And to give you some some something, well, I I can't say th- say that this is any more serious than your picks, but I think some people don't know we are crusaders. It kind of goes nicely also with this podcast, in my opinion. I should highlight at least one more here. <laughs> this is from Olympi from the bullfight scene. I think there are many things about Mr. Bond one does not know. It would be interesting to attend a night school, perhaps. I, I actually have to have to confess it was very hard for me to pick up the favorite quote for this episode because I actually yeah. because I had to resist the urge of not simply to fuck with the film and also fuck with Kari here. I had to resist the urge not to pick up kind of the most cringiest line in the that Bond gives in this film. About the gadgets. I I actually I don't know what would have been the winner, had I actually taken this more as a joke and simply, you know, named a cringy line as my favorite quote, like, because there is so many of those, that countless of one-liners that Bond throws throughout the film that simply does not work at for exa- all. <laughs> for example. For, for example, you know, the what, what is the Christmas present quote that Bond gives to the tied-up henchman? Just yeah. before the yeah the escape starts. Uh, that is, you should have been gift wrapped. Yeah, for example, that extremely cringy, extremely bad one-liner. That was. But uh, I liked uh, when he was whispering the "Merry Christmas." I hated it. I fucking hated it. They should have left it at that. It it, it would have been actually that was that was another one I was thinking of. You know, when I was considering if I should take take the favorite quote as a joke this time. But what about this one? Thank you, Q, but this time I've got the gadgets and I know how to use them. Yeah, After. that was also, that was also <laughs> fucking bad. Also, all the one-liners he gives to the dog at the end of the film were bad. Yeah, I've been saying a lot about this film that George Lazenby's Bond is joking to himself too much here. It is. And what what's worse, it's not the jokes are not that funny most of yeah. the time. Yeah. All right. Did we go through this? All right. Favorite kill. Hmm. Ah. Oh. Mine would be Tracy because it's a dramatic element. So I have no I have no problem with that. Ah, uh, that's kind of depressing. It did make me feel very good. Yeah. Well, I I I guess I have to pick something else than Tracy so that it's not once again all all three of us agreeing so I will take that one henchman that Bond knocks out of the cliff and there is this long take of him falling and you can clearly see as they That's great. switch it into a puppet yeah they do and you have this forever continuing falling puppet scene with and then it bounces off from the ground like it fucking bounces <laughs> off the ground. <laughs> and they kept it all in the fucking film. Oh my god. Uh. I think I can beat that choice in terms of pure grotesqueness. I, I like the kill where the guy was thrown into a snowplow, a, a snow machine. <laughs> he had lots of guts. Yeah, exactly. And you could see the kind of red, blood-ridden... Snow coming up the other end of it. Uh, I, yeah. I I kind of love how 
or the rest of the henchmen simply you know, continue skiing past the red snow. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, for Henrik, the Finnish translation in the 90s was Hänessä oli aineesta. Not bad. Not bad. I have no idea what to suggest for random confusing question, Henrik. Mm. I guess this has been confusing film for you, so... This has been confusing film. But, you know, if if you would actually run over a henchman who's filled with gods, what would you actually use? Would it be simply a car or landmower? Good question. Always wanted this to be asked. Um, a blender. That's pretty good one. I, I like the Alien 3 way when he gets into this huge fan. So something like that I would use. Yeah, now now I, I actually, right after proposing the question, I actually realized it way too confusing for me to actually answer. <laughs> Shit. I... The first one that comes mind, which I've always been kind of interested to try out, would be, you know, what the hell is there? In the ending of Who Framed Roger Rabbit when they run over Doctor Doom or, or the Judge Doom. Is it some kind of a s- snow pushing device? No, it's it's what you use when you are making, you know... Street roller? Yeah, street roller. Okay, does it make sense to Tom? No. <laughs> Well, uh, actually, yeah. I I guess road roller is the correct term to use. But simply to see if you can actually flatten out a person like a pancake with that. Yeah. It would all steam. Ah, uh, steamroller. Steamroller could also be, you know, yeah. Mm. First image that comes to mind. On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Hmm. Tough. Hmm. 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 For me, it's in the title sequence when when George Lazenby is running away from the beach with the blue background. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing really very defining, I don't think. Not really. Yeah, but what's the first image? To that... me, actually, it appeared right now. Yeah, the and beach. That, that is the image of Bond going through the Playboy magazine. Yeah. Take it as you will, but, you know, the first <laughs> image... Tom? Probably the stalking scene on, on the beach. Yeah. And what's the best to exemplify the film? Oh. I, I, will go, I will go with James Bond with his brand new wife in his arms. Dead. Yeah. I I will go with the final attack on Blofeld's compound because it it kind of a, it, it has, to me it kind of a combines all the tonal problems that the film has or the in that the tonal shifts all come together in one scene where the tone completely shifts there there is some really awesome really cool moments so like for example that one moment when bond is on his belly sliding on the ice and cutting down the bad guys with the machine gun then there is the old sean connery style action for example, with the flamethrower attack. And then there is simply bizarre, goofy moments, like the scientist guy throwing the bottle of acid at Bond, and then there is moments that make no fucking sense at all, like that moment when Bond takes photographs of the wall map, and that somehow transforms into face shots of women. So to me, that kind of a best exemplifies 
Or at least it exemplifies the problems with this film. I just always took it that he's taking close-up pictures of the map and somewhere there is the faces of the girls hidden. Maybe this camera has the ability to, you know, filter something out and you can see the pictures. Whatever. Maybe it has the, you know, the capability of actually capturing the script. It's a funny way how Peace Gloria explodes, right? The model, you know, when it explodes, it seems like it just explodes all at once and it becomes kind of a crater. I didn't even get that that when I saw this. Yeah. Uh, what took you out of OHMSS? Huh. For me, it was the entire story, the entire plot of the film. <laughs> I mean, I had to pause three times to take a half an hour break. Really? Yeah, so that's one hour and a half I had to dedicate to not watching this film because I found it so hard to get through. For me, n- <laughs> nothing really except that the first first half could have been a lot more tighter in places. Maybe you could have just completely removed the Gumball scene. To me, it was actually the fact that I felt that this was, in the end, quite boring a lot of times. I was actually bored with with during watching this film. And I can't pinpoint that to any one reason, because I will once again, during the next question, which is what put me in, I will pinpoint one of these slower, more boring scenes of the film as, as an element that put me in. So it's it's not one scene. It's It's not some one aspect of the film, but somehow this just didn't grab me on its hold. And I was actually bored majority of the film. I spent more time watching the clock than I did watching the film itself. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe that has something to do with the boredom. And what drew me in was just picking holes in the film itself. (laughs) Just marvelling at at the sheer unrealisticness of it, which I kind of enjoyed to a certain extent. To me, it was... Like I already mentioned... This is one of the boring aspects of the film. I actually did like those moments when Bond did actual spy stuff. What pulled me in was basically most of Peace Gloria. I liked the location and I liked these larger than life ridiculous plans by Blofeld and the Spectre organization. I enjoy this goofy shit. But how can Bond survive a grenade attack? Uh, when you mentioned that grenade attack first time today, I didn't even know what the hell you were talking about. But so the bobsled, okay. I never saw it as a problem. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Vistas, it's a beautiful film to watch. The acting is pretty good here. The plot that affects Bond in an emotional way. There's many things that pull me in here. And it's one of the more interesting plots, even if ridiculous. And one of the best films out of the franchise. Ooh, kind of high remarks there. Most definitely is, in the first top three, probably. Did we watch the same film? Like, like do, do you have some alternative gut you are hiding there? I don't know how you guys can be bored. I mean, it is slow <laughs> in the first half, but, uh, I mean, the locations, the acting, uh, the, there, that there Bond is kind of vulnerable it, emotionally. There, there even is not that many locations in this one. It's very shallow, and there's no depth. Well, the Switzerland location in itself, maybe I just love this kind of a location. I love mountain, this mountain location, everything that happens there, basically. I enjoy it thoroughly. The ski chases, the landscapes. 
But what would you change in the film, Scissors of Sacrilege? Now, now is your chance to make the perfect on Her Majesty's. Oh wow! <laughs> what would I change? It's I a... would change. I would change the actor of uh, James Bond. Short for that reason, be it's it's kind of a tricky question because I I have been bad mouthing the film to such a degree that this almost comes to a question of how would I fix the movie. Or would I go ahead with the movie in the first place if I was a director? Should I just scrap the film? I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would actually take a note from your playbook. I would scrap the film because <laughs> because I wow. I wow guys the the fucking I mean the biggest you... problem you... with with me and this film is is the tone and the fact that I... What about the tone? To me, it feels like the, the film itself doesn't know what it's trying to be and what it's trying to do. And I don't know how to actually fix that one, except, you know, taking the whole project, cutting it open, and simply trying to do the whole thing again, from the scratch. <clears throat> I would still concentrate on the beginning of the film just trying to make it trim it a little bit and there's this lot of this blah 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 at sir hillary Bray's office about some ancestral blah 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 of james bond it's not important and some of the transitions to different scenes might need a little work like james bond has this long dialogue how he has this great plan this sir hillary Bray impersonation scheme and it just comes kind of just like that, kind of a suddenly. I think this transition could have been better. It all kind of... The information is sent to you at rapid fire speed. Then again, the many scenes are kind of redundant and boring. Yeah. Then again, it, it also has the way problem with the way how, how the fight scenes and the action is being edited throughout the film. And it, it has a chase scene that... Well, if, if you start the chase when Bond escapes... The base and end it at the avalanche. It it lasts for 25 minutes. And like none of these things are not something that you can do. Like you can have a good film. You can have even a great film even with this problem. Fucking Batman Begins also had atrocious fight editing. And Mad Max Fury Road was nothing but a big chase scene. So... Alone these things are not false and they don't destroy your film, but somehow, you know, nothing comes together in Bond. It's almost I... like they are doing wrong things with a wrong franchise. Mm-hmm. Wrong franchise. Yeah. I mean... I, I, I mean, Bond, I Bond is, in its in its essence, Bond is not a franchise where, where your chase scene takes 25 minutes. It's not a franchise where... You limit your vistas to three, maybe four or five places. It's supposed to be a globe-throtting adventure. And you can, you can, I'm not saying that you can't change, you know, you can't change the formula and you can't make changes and you can't kind of reinvent the film. I'm not saying that you have, as a porn film, you most definitely absolutely have to, have to stick with these rules and you, you can't break them. But this film just, in my opinion, this film simply does not manage to do it. Like, it, it falls flat when it tries to do that. And those, what could have been this film taking bold new choices 
and shaping up the formula of Bond film, making it more limited in its vistas, making a chase scene last longer. They could have been strong acts of the film, they could have been counted as pros, but since the film does not manage to pull them off, satisfactory they become faults. I don't get this globetrotting problem that you see, like From Russia with Love, for example, didn't have a lot of globetrotting. It was just about this big little train trip. It, it was. For me, just this main location for Majesties works so well that you don't need to do even any globetrotting. But I do understand your point that the chase lasts a little bit too long. But okay, um, did we cover that? I so, guess we did. Yeah, you really know you're watching on Her Majesty's when when James Bond gets married for me. When your dick starts to hurt from simply thinking about the amount of sex that is going on. Oh, well, there is one childhood, or when Blazenby was 15, he was very keen on about the girls, and he did see a very hot chick down the road, and just to pretend... He he just stopped there, trying to pretend that his motorbike was broken, so that he could just check out this girl next door. And then wow. the girl said, "What what are you doing? Why are you checking me out? Or why are you staring at me?" And then the girl invited Lazenby to apartment, and uh, sex happened. And on one of those occasions, he finally reached the final moment, so to speak. And Lazenby thought that he's dick exploded and he had to interrupt the lady for a while to check that his dick was still in place yeah wow. w- w- wasn't he try humping the lady like the clothes he they didn't take yeah. the clothes off because reasonably didn't know how 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 you do sex and then they went to car to do it oh yeah yeah they yeah we know too much about lazenby ladies and gentlemen but you know, that dry humping might explain how Bond can have three different dates, you know, on one hour separate of each other. <laughs> and Tom, you really know you're watching On Her Majesty's When? When you are called Hilly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was so bad, sorry. Hilly, you old devil. That was the worst. I, I, I really loved that, that was so funny. Call me Hilly. Uh, I, I love the creepy factor that Bond uses the exact same pickup line on two different women. I love that he uses as a cover some real person and is giving him this kind of a reputation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so dude. So he stole his job and destroyed his career, basically. <laughs> basically. Well, Jesus. I'm, I'm, uh, this con- considering this, I'm happy that his cover was blown. Yeah. But I guess it was a matter of time. And three adjectives to describe the film. Oh, oh. For me, it would be just beautiful, satisfying, and sad. Hmm. Boring, boring, boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one, actually. Um, I, I will go continue with a motif from the previous Bond episode. So, the taglines I found from this movie's poster were far up, far out, and far more. So, my adjectives would be far trying, because it, honest to God, it does try to be a different kind of a beast. Far outing, because it doesn't succeed in that department all the time, all that well. And 
far creepier because all the shit that Bond does. <laughs> right, I guess I'll accept that as adjectives. You 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 have no choice here. That that's all you are gonna get. Did you look at your watch? You did look at your watch. Oh yes, did you? I didn't to look at my watch. I I was poor, but for some reason I didn't to look at my watch, which is a bit of a strange actually. I didn't look at my watch, and but I do admit that, that there are like pacing issues and there are boring moments. But still, let's get to the main meat of the show. So, would you recommend on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Uh, I kind of think it's essential watching if you want to understand the whole evolution of Bond. So, yes, I would. But would did you like the film? You know, it it was really really average. Would you recommend it for yourself? For for, for myself? Yeah. <laughs> Would I recommend my... <laughs> um, no. <laughs> you you just ha- had to push it, Kari. You, you just couldn't <laughs> stop. Like, like the first two <laughs> answers you got were still kind of a nice, but that just wasn't enough. Yeah, you had to I try w- your luck. I, we want the straight answers. So would I recommend this film? I guess I'll go here. So yeah, I would recommend it. One of the best Bond films still. One of the best locations. One of the best plots, oh, he's because it's a plot... Hmm? Surely you troll. <laughs> it is one of the best plots. Bond gets married, for Christ's sake. Of course, the plot is ridiculous, but it's also one of the best, and it's one of the best adaptations from the book, because it's we, basically which, the, the book. Which, which says is a lot about the books. Mm, yeah. I mean, holy fuck. Carrie, 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 would you recommend the film to Carrie? I'm getting to that after my rambling. Okay. But uh, yeah, I would I would recommend it to myself. I would recommend it to everyone else as well. And of course, James Bond fans are going to watch it anyway. Or people who want to go through the entire series. I mean, what the hell? How many actually good Bond films out, are out there? And this is one of them. It has the excitement, and it has a story that affects the character, and there are all of these characters are great: Blofeld uh, and uh, Irma Bund and uh, Grunther. I think me and Henrik are in, in the majority because, of course, it didn't budget the it didn't get much as as much money as the previous Bond films, which is to be expected when you change the main lead actor and get rid of Sean Connery, and it didn't make us. As much, I guess. Let's see what it did. Wasn't it something like 78 million or something like that? Cross like USA, eight... twi- 22.8 million. Worldwide, 59.2 million. Budget, 7 million. So, yeah. I mean, it's not as good as something like Goldfinger, I guess. <laughs> but um, it's still a huge return. But nobody knows. Maybe the second Lazenby be film could have been a complete catastrophe because now the audience would have been aware of what George Lazenby's Bond would be and if they do not like it then it could have been a financial catastrophe. So for now uh, Lazenby was still a curiosity and brought the money home. And I do like that they are kind of reducing the gadget tree here just making Bond survive on his own. And as Henrik did point out it has some of this detective work that you get in this early Bond films. And this is an end of an era. This is the last film of its kind in this series. 
after just two years after this, it goes into full slapstick humor nonsense in the 1971 Diamonds of Ever with Sean Connery. And it follows on that road for quite some time. We never get back to this age of Bond. It's an extreme tonal shift after this film. Huge. I would recommend. And Henrik? I was actually hoping that you would forget my turn and simply, you know, jump into closing this podcast and I could escape the question. Nice try. Well, it, it was an honest god, an attempt. But it, it's it's kind of a tricky, tricky question to answer. Because, okay, throughout this episode, I have given the film a lot of shit. I I don't hate it as much as 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 much as it might appear based on all that I have been saying throughout the episode. I even kind of liked it, even though it's it's a kind of a complete mess. And I I do think that if you are a Bond fan, if if you watch the entire franchise, this is kind of a good film to check up because of exactly how weird it is. Like Tom pointed out, it, it kind of showcases you the history of the franchise, and this showcases many of the problematic aspects of the franchise. And in, in that sense, you know, if, if you are a Bond fan, if you have, have watched the other Bond films, you can find a lot of material in this one. And this can be a very good think piece for you. But still, I can't bring myself to recommend this one. So no recommendation from here. You just gave a no recommendation to a film that is most aching to Dalton in its era. Apart from from Russia with Love or the Doctor No or something. It it says a lot about the era. It it says more than you know. It says it says more about the era than it says about Dalton. Hmm. But I'm happy that we are not completely hating on George Lazenby here. That you found actually something else to complain about. I I, I did make this notion before, but I I also. I have always felt that Lazenby as a Bond has garnered some undeserved hate as being pointed out as the one aspect of the film that does not work. Because George Lazenby isn't all terrible and he is even kind of a brave in what he's he's doing and in sometimes he's even even quite good. Yeah, maybe that arrogance was put into good use. Yeah. So there are there are problems with Lazenby's performance, but Lazenby alone is not to blame for On Her Majesty's Secret Service because the goddamn script and the direction and the tone none of those actually make any favors towards Lazenby. Less charismatic than Sean Connery for sure, and a little bit more wooden, let's say. And there is this kind of a swagger walk that he does in Peace Gloria Corridors. And I thought that was out of place. They couldn't quite get rid of his whatever Australian walk there. I'm done. Are we done? With this film, most definitely. Good. So next time when it comes to James Bond's, we will check out Roger Moore's best film out of Bond's The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977, which was followed by the abysmal Moonraker, which we will also cover as the... What? These, these movies as the best and the worst films of his run. Yeah. Waiting with a lot of enthusiasm that episode where we yeah. will get to roast our visitor. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> there is a fighting stance there. And as you know, we're 
as we have ad nauseum recommended, please join our 20 films from 20 different countries international cinema challenge. So you can find the list on our Facebook and Twitter pages and you can watch all the same films from the same films that we are going through. If you don't want to watch those, then choose whatever 20 different films from 20 different countries of your own choosing. And then we'll see you in January 2020 to chat about those films and how the experience was for you. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, anything else, Henrik, that I might have dropped out. No, let's uh, let's just sign off. Yeah, the mosquitoes are eating me and it's getting really dark here in the parks and my battery is at 3%. So thank you for joining us. And um, <laughs> next week, Henrik, what would it be? I don't have a faintest idea. God damn it. I'll be touching uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 despite all my objections. Well, you know, I'm a self-destructing lunatic, so we can try. So, next week, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the gayest horror film of all time, coming at your direction next week. So, anything snarky or smart into this end? I'm way too tired. Well, I have to say, you, both of you, are completely wrong about Moonraker. (laughs) (laughs) Sucker punching us with your opinion on Moonraker, as we are closing the podcast and Curry's battery is running off. That's you a, are you that's are a, wrong. That's, that's a low trick, man. <laughs> Alright. I need to go. I just need to. Goodbye. See you next week. The next week. Moi moi. So my mother thinks I'm talking to pedophiles on the internet. <laughs> the fuck? I know.